All right, welcome. Max Presnell, Adam Sparrow. Thank you for coming in. So, Thank you, Richie. The idea behind this story is, I was just telling Max, I did an interview with Mark Reed a few weeks back and people absolutely loved hearing all the stories about the old times. And I thought, well, there's so many more stories from that time to talk about and it's probably the best era in betting in Australia. Um, we'll, yeah. We can discuss that in this podcast. And then I thought, well, how can we put as much colour and life to these stories as possible. And I thought of Max straight away. And um, luckily for me, Adam, you know Max well, called Max and Max was more than happy to come in and talk with us. So appreciate you coming in, Max. Um, so I asked you, Adam, when we wanted to talk about this period in time, it's such a big period of time and so much happened. And I said to you, let's try and narrow it down to say 10 or so of the most influential punters and stuff of that time. And you came up with nine names that you said, let's focus on these people, which was... And I'd heard of all of them, which mm. is good. And then luckily for me, there's this book, which is called Gentlemen of the Australian Turf. And written by David Hickey, written back in the 80s. But it's actually a very good read. And it um, sort of paints a portrait of some of these characters really, really well. So I thought what I would do is read a little bit about each of the characters we're going to talk about from this. If they're not in this book, I got some stuff from the internet and stuff. Yep. So I'll just read a little bit to introduce these people. And then I'll ha hand over to you two to put a bit bit more colour life and story to them all. Um, I think the big point to start with is what you say, Adam, and also what Mark Reed said is that there was, there was two economies back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right? There was the economy that you, that you had money to bet with and then there was the economy which was for everyday life. Is that fair to say that it was...? Well, I think people who bet in large amounts of money have a very different idea of money. To bet in those amounts, you can't have a lot of regard for money. Yeah. And to that was be a, big a professional thing. punter, you can't have a lot of regard for money. Yeah. Because you know, you're making decisions and you're putting big amounts on. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, what can I do with this money? Yep. Uh, so you have to be rather flippant with money. Mm. Uh, where a bookmaker's different. See, as I say to people about a bookie and a punter, the difference between a bookie and a punter is this. A bookie's happy to go to the races with 20,000 in his bag and happy to win 1,000. Yeah. A punter goes to the races with 1,000 and wants to turn it into 20. True. That's the different mentality of them. Yep. So, and so punters don't have a big value of money, you might say. And a lot of a lot of the people we're going to talk about in this podcast, the only reason they bet was to make more money so they could bet more and bet bigger. Is that well, well, fair? Well, I knew a lot of them. I grew up with them all. As a, you know, I was with my father all the time and he was very good friends with all of them and I knew them well. I used to go to the races. And, watch it. and my take on it through living with my father and living the life myself and knowing those people... Yeah, they live very well, but money was really for betting with. Yeah. And, and they won and lost fortunes. Yeah. You know, they never thought – they'd have massive wins. They could have gone and bought three or four houses in Coogee Bay Road because mm. I grew up in Coogee at the time in the 70s, eh? And, you know, that, no, we've got a house. We'll just keep betting with yeah. that. You know? and and to put course, some perspective to how big the betting mm. back was and your dad was a big player and you tell mm. the story, what was the most your dad ever won in – he won £100,000 in a week in 1962, I think it was, yeah. So 100000 And did he go and buy a house he after went and bought that? One, the house which, we, which was the family home for 37 years, he paid £7,500 for it. Right, so he bought a beautiful house in Coogee yeah, for £7,500 yeah. after winning £100,000. He could have bought 10 of them, he bought one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember my uncle telling me, so I remember when your dad won the money, we speak about it now, he said, oh, well, I'm not going to bet anymore. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I never have to bet again. He said, so your yeah. dad was Jack Sparrow, Jack very Sparrow. well known. Very well um, Very colourful, very one of the original colourful racing yeah. identities. The last he, of the he passed away, racing. what, how many years ago did he die? Five years ago on my birthday. He made sure I didn't forget. Yeah, and he, he lived to 95. 
94. Do you want to quickly tell the story in the nursing home when they called you from the nursing home with a complaint ah, yes, about it? Ah, yes, the nursing home. So he'd been in the nursing home five days and yeah. it was a Saturday morning. And, and, and the nursing home Monday. up at King's Cross, right? Yeah. He went back to where it all started. Up at, uh, yeah, Rush Cutters Bay. Mm-hmm. And I get a phone call and it was just, I remember it was Saturday morning because I was looking through the fields and they said, well, it's, you know, from the nursing home. And I went, oh, is my father all right? I'm thinking they're saying, you know, he's dead. He was 92 at this stage. And they said, oh, no, he's okay. So we just went into his room last night and we found one of the residents in bed with him. <laughs> and I burst out laughing. I said, yeah, and? Well, it's very inappropriate behaviour, they said, and it's not tolerated here. And I said, well, it's not inappropriate for him. I said, normally they'd have two in bed with yeah. him. And I'm just laughing. He said, well, it's not a laughing matter, she said. You know, can you have a talk to him and tell him he's not allowed to do it? I said, I won't be able to tell him what to do. I said, no one tells him what to do. Yeah. And that was that. Yeah. But that was the sort of guy he was. He was Funny, a, funny. funny. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's rip into it. So the first punter I want to talk about, so we're going to talk about nine punters. Mm. Nine punters and one of those is also big betting Bill Waterhouse who sort of intrinsically fits in with all of them. But anyway, mm. so I'm going to read and, you know, some of the excerpts are a little long but I think it's important so we really understand who we're talking about. So this first one is about Philippe Ismail, the Filipino fireball and it's an excerpt from David Hickey's book. When the Sydney racing journalist Keith Robbins asked Bill Waterhouse to name the biggest punter he had encountered on racetracks around the world, Waterhouse replied, the babe Philip Ismail stands on his own. The babe is not only the biggest punter I have seen, he's the biggest I've even heard about. Philippe Ismail, the Filipino fireball, was born a member of one of the wealthiest families in the Philippines. He acquired his interest in racing while attending the University in California but decided it was useless, putting huge amounts on horses through the tote. There are no on-course bookies in the US and seeing the price shrink accordingly. He tried the United Kingdom for a time, but the bookies there had started to lose their dash as the government continued to raise betting taxes, and he found he could, he could, found they could not accommodate his mammoth betting style. He returned to Miller in the mid-1960s and decided to give Australian racing a trial. So we're back in the... So he arrived sort of early 1960s. So what are your... How old are you? Look, no, I was born in 1964. I never met Philippe Ismail. I'd heard plenty about him and my father spoke about him, about different things. I don't know. Max would know a lot more about Philippe Ismail. No, they said he's the biggest punter of all time. That's all I know. Yeah. yeah but I didn't know him. Did you ever meet him, Max? A few fleeting, uh, you'd say, meetings. Uh, just to say hello uh, after a race. But uh, no, he was a will of, a, will of the wisp. Yeah. He wasn't out there like some of the other big punters, big, big operators. I think a fellow called Frank Ford was his racing manager. Uh, I think so he owned a lot of horses? Called. Yes, he owned a lot of horses. He, he spent a lot of money, uh, become established in mm. Australia. He, he certainly was a major player, but he was like one of these at – that, at that stage there were imports. They, they stood out, I think, uh, Romano who owned Burnborough. When I say imports, I'm talking about um, – uh, People that weren't true blue Australians, they, mm. they did stand out. They had their own personality. But they had, but uh, the fireball had his own staff around him. You couldn't get to him, mm. like as a journalist, you couldn't get to him. He had, you had to try and get through Frank Ford, who right. was again his racing manager. But no, he was a big punter. But uh, I don't think any of those blokes would uh, live with Kerry Packer as far as their size and their bets are concerned. But that's a different story. Uh, you know, he was a, a punter and he, he did strike trouble too with yeah. the authorities. He did time. He was outed. Yeah, so um, got, he got warned over, off. Over, yeah. Yes, over, over, over the running of a horse. But no, um, 
he certainly he added he had he added spark to the yeah. Australian racing scene. There's no doubt about it. I got that. there's a good story here that I just quickly read. So on the first of May 1968, Ismail set racing history at a midweek fixture at Newcastle. A two-year-old Silver Strike was entered for a lowly maiden race with a first stake of $350. So the first prize for winning the race was $350. Ismail was was not even on the course, but his agent, Frank Ford, who you just talked about, claimed Bill Waterhouse for a single bet of an even $100,000 and was set. Silver Strike started four to seven and won easily. So the first prize of the race is three hundred and fifty, and the and the fireball is having a hundred thousand. Yeah. So that that gives you a bit of perspective. And hundred thousand. You could have bought Newcastle for a hundred thousand. Then you could have gone and bought the whole suburb. The point is, in racing in those days, prize money was nothing. Yeah. Nobody cared about prize money. Yeah. So it was all about trainers, the punt. Trainers would yeah. get would wait six months to get get the ho- the right horse in the right race and the right bet price and, bet. Yeah. and would go to extremes to get it. <laughs> now with the fireball. And Bill Waterhouse. Bill Waterhouse is like a big game fisherman playing a marlin. Mm. He'd play these. He'd play these big putters. Mm. Now, if I'd went up to Bill Waterhouse and said, "Bill, can I have ten thousand on this horse first starter at Newcastle?" He'd look at me. He'd say, "Something's wrong about this. Mm. This young mug wouldn't be putting ten thousand. Go to somebody else. Right. Yeah. He's, he's doing it for somebody else. And anyway, I, I don't like that ten. No, you can. How much can I have on? Oh, you've got the odds to two hundred. But yeah. with with the big players. Yeah, Bill would fish. So he played heads. Them. He yeah. had to let them on. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, yeah. they might, might have gone anywhere. And he knew there was plenty there, plenty to be won, some to be lost. But yeah. at the end of the day, he could beat them. That day, the fireball beat Bill. Yeah. But did uh, the fireball end up on top of Bill? I doubt it very much. <laughs> yeah. I'm betting a million to one the fireball in that contest. Yeah. So why don't we keep rolling? Let's talk about Big Bet and Bill Waterhouse. Um, and I've got a little, little bit of stuff to read about him, once again from the David Hickey book. So William Stanley Waterhouse is Australia's best-known bookie and was for 20 years the biggest. Through other periods, as a barrister, business and consular general for the Kingdom of, Tong- for the Kingdom of Tonga, but bookmain- bookmaking remained his forte. So this is a good little story that I'll read um, and it just really talks about the psyche that you're talking about of the punter and the bookie and that, mm. that mental battle. In 1967, Bill Waterhouse flew to Melbourne to field by invitation at Flemington during the Melbourne Cup Carnival. Ismail and his syndicate had coupled Young Brady and Red Handed months earlier to win 665000 in the Victoria Derby Melbourne Cup double. Young Brandy started a hot 6-4 favourite <coughs> in the Derby but was beaten. On Melbourne Cup day, it was obvious Ismail would back, re- would back Red Handed for a fortune. And this is what Bill Waterhouse said about what happened on that day. I saw Ismail coming. He was coming in to claim Red Handed. When he was just a few feet away, I looked him straight in the eye. He stopped in his tracks. He slowly edged his way to my side. Just as he was about to claim me, I reached up to my board and I flipped the price out to nine to two. Ismail looked aghast. I knew he wanted to bet right-handed and I knew, and he knew that I knew. And there I was giving him half a point better than any other bookmaker on course. With his betting units, that was worth anything from 50000 to a million dollars. You could see him thinking, reacting. He must have thought I was challenging him. He must have thought that I knew something. Straight away, he said, 50,000, 200,000 on general command. I took the bet and he went away. It is history that Red Hand had won the 1967 Melbourne Cup, um, finishing a long way ahead of general command. And then Waterhouse goes on to say, that was the period that Frank devalued to Ismail for three years. I never knocked back a bet. I took everything as it came, but I was years younger then. I would not like to do that again. Um, 
interesting about that whole psyche thing and you feel that sort of the advantage that the Waterhouse family have got these days. You know, they're obviously incredibly hard workers but they, you know, have a lot of advantage in life and you feel that possibly that was set up during that period where Bill was just betting massive and took these punters on and won. Yeah? Well, uh, you would ha- you'd imagine that the business he did for Philippe Ismail betting with Bill Waterhouse certainly would have added a lot to the yeah. Waterhouse fortune. Yeah. He would have lost a lot of money. Yeah. Philippe Ismail. Yeah. From what I've heard, he lost fortunes, yeah. Um, anything more to add about Big Bet and Bill Waterhouse? Oh, where do you start? <laughs> where do you want to start? I've got no doubt that I I strongly disagree that he was Australia's biggest bookmaker. Mm-hmm. But I doubt whether there was one as controversial. Yeah. When you look at his career, and it was based on 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 big punters, big big betting. But when you look over his career, he was outed. He was involved in fine cotton. Uh, by gee, you know, he, he did supply headlines. They were always was a major player. The racing authorities were always trying to get rid of him, weren't they? Wasn't no, well, like Bill was always he was playing the edges. Mm. Like you know, so always trying to get rid of him. When you look at the massive turnover tax that Bill Waterhouse would have played, I don't think they would have been trying to get rid of him. Yeah, because don't forget all these big bets, like the racing industry, the AJC, the VRC, they got their piece of the action. Mm. And for what? Mm. Just having him stand up, he was taking the risk. So I don't think they're trying to get rid of him. But then again, the AJC and the VRC, they're very puritanical. Uh, Bill, like when you look at Bill's record, they, there's a few dark marks there. They mm. treated him with extreme caution. Mm. And on reflection, I think they're entitled to. What do you think? Well, you it, when I started working for Robbie in 1980, his son who is, you know, I love Robbie, he's a great guy, um, Bill was like the king of the race course. He was. He'd stand up there and... Smoking? Smoking? Um, no, I don't think he was smoking there, but I remember when I was younger at being at the races in the 70s, he never had a cigarette out of his mouth. Mm. I think by the time 9 out, he might have given them away, but when I was a little boy, I used to, he'd, he'd never have one out of his mouth. Be, and he still lived to 95 or something, even after uh, smoking? 97, I think. 97 was he, well. And, but what I was going to say, but he was, it was like it was his kingdom. Would you agree with that, Max? He sort of like look over it and no That's one ever said anything out of school to him, like... Everyone had abused bookies for some yeah. reason, you know, they don't bet him enough. No one ever said it to Bill. He was very he was a very imposing figure. He was yeah. an imposing. But the betting figure. ring then was full of imposing figures. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't say there was one more imposing, but you know, when I think of Arthur Browning, I can go back. Lovely there. man. They were yeah. they they were very imposing figures. He's but a the big thing man, that always Brown, struck yeah. me about Waterhouse was the way he could write betting tickets. Now we'd have a big stack of betting yeah. tickets. Yeah. And <laughs> big. Bing. And yeah. he'd be right. And we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking Very about 50 or 60 a day. We're talking about 100 a race. Yeah. Try yeah. Doing it. Now, I wouldn't say the the printing, you could make, you could understand it. Mm. <laughs> no, that wasn't, they, they weren't. It, but yeah, they the weren't business very clear was printing. so intense that he was just, and you can't imagine 40, 50 people around this stand mm. and with Bill Waterhouse well, that's writing what it's like. these yeah. tickets. Great theatre. And, and then the clerks trying to take it. And the whole thing. And then someone's penciling too, writing it all down. And you've got yeah. no idea. And, and try to mm. keep. The pencilers are amazing. <laughs> Adam, you know more about it than yeah. I do. But I used to write them for adding, Robbie. Add, 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 adding them up and keeping tallies with this 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 machine. Yeah. Just whipping and it's all in the head out. too, no well, computers. Well, the, the most important one is the bagman. And when I worked for Robbie, it, it, and this is in 1980, I remember the day I was on the ground, he said, Adam, and he just gave me the tickets. And I'm 16, right? You know, I turned 16 in January, I was working there in May, so I'm not even 16 and a half. 
Adam Wright tickets. And in those days, the, the, the betting ring was full and Robbie was in the outer. And it was as a, my first time I remember was at Rose Hill and uh, there was a big, big crowd in the outer. And with, of course, Robbie was the glamour bookie. You'd have 40 people, honestly, mm. from the moment the prices went up, just non-stop. Yeah. And, and the bagman was a guy called Vince Murphy, the brother of Chris Murphy, the lawyer. And Vince Murphy was incredible. He would re- re- blokes had come up on thirty five dollars on horse at eleven to eight and things like that and he'd just go, um, well I've got to think about what it is you yeah. know you know forty seven and after thirty five, blah blah blah, um, so and so and he just re- it was like monotone and I'd have to add it together yeah. and put the total on the thing with the Human initials of the horse and, and I'd yell out the last two number sixty nine, ticket seventy, but. The most important guy is the bagman because he's calling yeah. the bet out. Then the yeah, clerk right. has to write yeah. it down. It's not like with the machine yeah. now. And then, of course, the easiest job was probably mine, writing the ticket. All I had to do was add it together and put the initials of the horse and call the last two numbers. Mm. Boom. But Vince Murphy, he was a girl. And I think Gary Brown, um, who was a good fellow, he was uh, Bill's bagman then. And before that was the other bloke. Uh, what was his name? The big bloke. No, You'd remember him. No, I think but he um, was a good, good bag. There was a little earn yeah. there, like you know, for the other side of the bookmaker's bag. <laughs> like he was there putting the money in, but we were on the other side of trying, trying to get an earn out of it. But <laughs> there was a little go that, because Bill Waterhouse wrote so fast, and they were, they were taking so many bets down, it was humanly impossible. But whether it was Vince Murphy mm. or some, some other being, yeah, to get them all in the book, yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. If you had a, a little bet, let's say 10, <laughs> 20, 30, 40, $40, you'd go up and, and you'd say uh, uh, $80. They wouldn't have it in the book. And because there were so many, they might have had it there. Yeah. But there was no, nothing to signify in the car. Yeah. It could, you couldn't get too desperate yeah. and say, your $20 result, oh, no, that's 200 there. <laughs> and as long as you went a little bit small, yeah. Yeah. back small. to and just said, no, 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 that's, that's $40, not $20, they, they wouldn't go to the trouble of questioning it. Yeah. Because then you'd have to go to betting supervisors, you'd have to go to the whole business. And, of course, you couldn't do it too often. Yeah. But it was renowned amongst the desperates. Mm. Fortunately, I wasn't one. <laughs> that you could, uh, you know, you could get a little earn that way. But it was every man for himself on the race course. Uh, yeah. It's a great place to be. Yeah. Great education, and uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah. Just, just a footnote on that. There was a guy that used to go around the carnivals, and what he'd do: someone would have six thousand to four thousand a horse. Say he'd come straight down the top and have six thousand to uh, sixty to forty it mm. with the next. Ticket, he had must have had a little printing kit, and he changed the last number from a nine to an eight, and he put the extra no, extra two noughts on instead of being a hundred on the ticket to ten thousand on the ticket, and and if the horse won, he'd be first there to collect it. Right. Do you remember this bloke? It, it hit the okay. it, it hit the paper by, by reputation. And, I didn't. And I tell you something. My dad said to me one day. He really he, he found out. He, he jerried who he was. He said, "I see this bloke everywhere." And it's always in the paper the next day how a book he got done for 10000 He didn't really know him, but he wondered what he was doing. And you know, he see people at the races, you know, they're up to something. Yeah. And my dad could tell that. Yeah. But this guy used to travel around. And I think he got Sid Hill, who's a very yeah. good friend of my dad's, 
in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah he got Melbourne Sid Hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, that's what he'd do. He'd change the last number of the ticket. He must yeah. have had some little printing kit or whatever he did. And after Sid got done, my dad said, I think it must have been that bloke. He said, he's yeah. always, he saw him near the stand bit, before. Almost like an emu. Yeah. yeah, yeah. racehorse emu. A bit better than that, a bit, bit different than that. But anyway, that's um, I just, My, because Bill Wardhouse worked with Tom late in his life. And I didn't have a whole lot to do with him, but we used to bet with Tom because it was Tom and Bill Waterhouse. And the only funny thing that ever happened with me and Bill Waterhouse is this is probably 20 years ago. I was out at the track putting, the mon- putting money on for Sean and Kingsley. And Sean called me one day and somehow we started talking about Bill and I just said, oh, he just sort of stands around all day. You can tell he wishes he was betting so much bigger because Tom, of course, everything's changed. So Tom bets you the, what he had to bet you to win a 1,000 or two. You know, the, min- the minimum bet limit every time. And then one day Sean said... Let's have some fun. When Tom Tom goes to the toilet, go up to Bill and ask him for a hundred thousand on a horse and see what happens. So I was just watching their stand, and then I see Tom leave to go to the toilet, and I call Sean to go right. He's gone to the toilet. He goes right again, try and back the favour with him in Melbourne. So I walk up the to- walk up to Bill, say Bill, can I have a hundred thousand on number one in Melbourne, two ten or whatever it was. Bill says, that's a bet. And the computer <laughs> operator's like going, and then Bill's a, it's a bet, it's a bet. Anyway, Tom comes out of the toilet and can see that. I'm talking to Bill and no, he's not at the stand. You've never seen Tom run so hard. He's like, and then he gets, he's like, what's going on? I said, oh, Bill said he's going to bet us to win 100,000 on this horse. And Tom's like, no, no, no. <laughs> anyway. Is that we, when you kept sending bottles of water over? So yeah, true, drink, true, drink, true. Drink lots of water. So that was my experience with Bill. But he, yeah, he would have loved to, he would have, you know, he just he loved, loved betting. Being big. Big, he, yeah. he didn't like betting small like Tom used to, but the game was completely different then and sort of what you had to do. So let, let's move on from. One last story about Bill. I'll sure. Say, Robbie had to give me some money one day. And he said, can you go over and get it off Dad at Tom's stand? This is when he's over there with Tom. And I went <laughs> over there. I said, oh, Rob sent me 8,000 or whatever it was. I said, Rob told me to come over and get 8,000. He said, have you got a gun? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was old, but he's still yeah, with him. Still he like said, that. that's the only way you only get 8,000 off me if you've got a gun, he yeah. said. <laughs> um, let's, we'll move on. Hey, yep, sure. Max, do you want to just pull your th- – yeah, just get it. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so we'll move on to Hollywood George Edza. Um Going to need your help here, Adam, and yours too, Max. There wasn't a whole lot on him, um, but there's one excerpt here which is uh, pretty telling about the kind of mentality he had. So this is what he said in 1965, and once again, it's from the gentleman of the Australian Turf Book. I've had 60000 in the bank on a Friday night <clears throat> and awoke on a Sunday morning with nothing. I'll worry about it on a Sunday morning, but never on a Saturday. Money means nothing to me on a race course. You could say I was a different person. I forgot I had a family. If I have, a mo- if I have money, I will bet until every penny has gone. So this is – do you want to tell us a bit about who Hollywood George Edzer was? I mean, he's – You want me to go first? Yeah. Well, Hollywood was one of my father's closest friends. Mm-hmm. They were very close and my father loved him dearly, as, as did I. I knew him very well because you know, he was in my you – know, I was just part of my life since I was a baby mm-hmm. um, and the rest of his family, very close to me. Uh my father always said he was probably the biggest punter that he saw. And he, he tells one story where he said Hollywood had a suitcase full of money. And he said a couple of weeks later he rang me up and said, have you got any cash there, Jack? <laughs> he said, what happened to the suitcase? He said, it's gone. <laughs> and he said, it was just full. Yeah. In pounds. Cash. Pounds, days. Yeah. Full, full of money. But um, he always looked immaculate. Yep. Um, my father used to laugh. They'd go to the races together. He'd get out of the car and he said he'd be... Combing his hair back in the in the window, looking <laughs> in the reflection of the window, he was known. If it rained, he'd walk off. He'd have the be- most. He wore the he wore the most beautiful clothes. 
if it rained, he'd have a spare set of shoes in the car. He would go to the car and get the other set of shoes and come back in and give the shoes to somebody mm. away. You know, he was just uh, very – always looked immaculate. Yep. But a great person and every, much loved by all the people that knew him. And what, what, what did he do for business or was he just – it was just, just a, a punter. Yeah. That's all he ever really did, um, you know. He but was he – did he make a lot of money or was he – He won and lost fortunes. Yeah. But when I was a kid, he, uh, I remember the first – he had a beautiful big home in Vaucluse like a mansion type thing. I remember as a little, very young. And then, you know, so he, you know, he, he'd lived the life. Yeah. What was but your experience yeah. of him, Max? Yeah. Well, he was probably, well, he would have been one of the most colourful racing personalities of my time. He received the nickname. He came from Newcastle, uh, apparently, and he was up there and he was having a winning streak and his young bloke and the bookmaker said to him, oh, why don't you get out of town? Why don't you go to Hollywood? You'd be better <laughs> placed there. And, and the... Uh, the name Hollywood George stuck with him, but he, uh, when I say colourful, colourful by gee, he, he was good for we journalists, hacks, call us what you will, because he was always making a story. Mm. He, he he was, you'd see him stand out he like had a, a Hollywood star. He had a presence yes. in a betting yeah. ring and would be putting the money on. Mm. And uh, of course, spectacular. Mm. He had to take the knock which is you couldn't pay huge gambling debts on the Monday. They went into Tattersall's Club and, mm. and Hollywood said, well, he was tied up with Jack Large, who was a, one of the big bookmakers at the time, and they could not pay. Mm. And uh, it was a story that reverberated all around the racing world that this huge punter and he could not pay. Mm. Front page everywhere. And, mm. of course, um, there was also the story when Hollywood got shot. Yeah, so uh, he was, was he... He sort of was he a bit murky. Like, did he sort of? Oh, he's a colourful racing. Was he yeah, sort of? He associated <laughs> with all the. Well, you got to remember something. In those days, the gambling, the big punters at the races, they're all mixed up in illegal gambling. Um, there was a, you know, Sydney's underworld was you call it underworld was was thriving. Mm. Of course, every, there was an SP bookie on every corner. Legal gambling clubs. You know, the thieves were out running amok. They, you know, there was no, not much security, so everyone was nicking high-quality stuff. And, of course, Hollywood being involved in the betting knew all these people. Like, they'd drink at the Royal Oak Hotel at Double Bay, my father and him, and as a, as a young, young, young adult, I used to drink there with them. And, you know, it was like a hub for colourful characters. Everyone was doing something in there. So he knew all of those people... Without being involved in any of the games, oh, I do. Uh, oh, hey, 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 Adam! What about city tats? What about the city tats sting? Are well, I don't, going, I, I don't going, know about it. You want, we won't go to the city you, tats sting. You want Hollywood oh, and Jack to come and haunt me tonight? Well, no, I don't know anything yes. about it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, well, I don't it, know anything about it. It was something Hollywood. I reckon you could do a great television series yeah. on Holly. Yeah, would, but. You'd have to. I'm sorry. Do it on a ball. You would have to put yeah. city tats in it as much as because. So what's you, the what's the what's the well the brief thing tats, about city tats? Well, what they, it was a city tats. Oh, all the book is city tats. They all had these security lockers there. Yeah. And where they Safe put all this boxes, beautiful yeah. money, all their black money, beautiful money, which they couldn't declare, which went into beautiful, dirty, clean which, money. Oh, which which amounted to. To, to thousands and thousands of quid, like yeah. when a pound was a pound. Mm. Now, somebody 
got access to the master key. And when they went into the, uh, to the, the locker rooms, the bookies to get their, you know, just to maybe check their money or put some more in or take a little out, all gone. Wow. All gone. Yeah, my father and had a box there. All yeah. gone. I hope he left it. Yeah, no, 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 our era, Hollywood yeah. George Edsa. Okay. And it was said that that pool might have come into Hollywood's presence <laughs> at some time and, well, it was said, but nothing was ever proved. Yeah. However, however, when Hollywood got shot, his son told me that uh, it was that they had a, a famous city tats was famous for whip around. Anybody was in trouble, anybody didn't have hmm. enough money for... They'd have the famous city tats whip around. They'd take it around and, and the money would be found. Well, apparently, <laughs> they had a whip around for a hitman from Melbourne to <laughs> hit Hollywood. Failed. Yeah. It, it was a right. shot, but it, it didn't strike the, mm. the target in the right area. But, now nah, Hollywood, you had to... Look, he was a great character of yeah. my time. And you, you'll talk about... Did you, know him, did you know him personally? No, I spoke to him a couple of times. Yeah. So you, you're but a young man. What were you yep. in your twenties or something back? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was yeah. in my twenties. But look, they, they were they were such they were colourful times. Yeah. In many ways, they were great times. Mm. They were, as Adam said, they weren't particularly. You know, I, I I think they were better times in some ways. But when I see some of the corruption that came out of it now, and, uh, I I just wonder about that aspect of it. But the innocent people didn't seem to get uh, until uh, other things happened. But and uh, we won't go into that. But mm. they had nothing to do with racing. But uh, mm. no, it's it, it, it was a swinging town, Sydney. Yeah, and that's people like Hollywood George, they they just added to the colour. So and so one of the stories about the, the safe deposit boxes at City Tats. My father was one of the first people to be challenged by the taxation on being a professional punter in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And he had a safety deposit box full of money at the time. And the ATO went to City Tats and they demanded my father open the box. Now, this was in the paper. I believe it was front mm. page. Do you remember this story? Yeah. Anyway, my father refused to open the box. He said, I'm not opening it. And they said, we're going to get a court order to make you open it. And they put a seal on it. Well, my father broke the seal... Which like was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and took the money out. Oh. <laughs> How much money are we talking? Oh, like thirty thousand pounds. It's yeah. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And he went and gave it to his cousin to mine. My my cousin said, daughter of, of his cousin, they said, We remember when your father came round with this big box of money. And um, anyway, it said punter refuses to open safe and, and my father got into terrible trouble with the taxation because of it. Because they tried to make him a professional punter and tax him on that. Mm. But my father said he was a daughter. It wasn't pounds, it must have been dollars. Because he said it must have been 1966 or whatever, it turned to dollars. And he said, um, I'm a door-to-door -door shoe salesman, I earn $76 a week, blah, blah, blah. I pay tax on that. And he said, so that's what I've won. And he challenged it and won mm. about that side of it. But, but after that, 
my father was always terrified of the taxation. That's what he said to me. That's why I never bought any more property because mm. I couldn't. So yeah. him being in trouble with the tax, he should have paid tax and bought more property would have been better for me. See, right? that, was the, that, that was the point, mm. though, yeah. Adam, that black money. That's there right. There was a lot of black That's money why they kept around with that it, you yeah. could not do anything else with. Yeah, it was except out, that out pocket money. Was yeah. Yeah, but they won money. it anyway. But, but like, And yeah. that's why mm. you'll find so many, mm. so many of our colourful personalities mm. won the lottery. Yeah. Well, gee, they used to put a lot of money into well, it. Well, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, so, anyway, we'll, so we'll keep moving. We'll, we'll talk about Joe Taylor. And you mentioned before the gambling houses and where we mm. are. So we're in Surrey Hills right now mm. and... This whole area was where it all happened, wasn't it? Surrey Hills up to King's Cross down to Well, Tomo's was always just the, when I first went to Tomo's, it was just off Oxford Street. I was about fifteen. Yeah. my dad took me in there. Why not? We so I Carson's at it. I'll, I'll quickly yeah, read this yeah. thing about Joe Taylor to, to put a bit of perspective to it all. Um, so Joe Taylor was for nearly forty years one of the biggest powers behind the scenes of Sydney's illegal gambling rackets. Mm. He was one of the hidden people who controlled Tomo's, the legendary two-up school. And he also managed the illegal gambling den and card club, the Carlisle Club, from That's the right. mid 1950s. Mm. When that he was, still was gambling, in the 70s, by the way. Sorry, it was still he was in still operating 70s? it in the 70s. I remember waiting in the car outside of there when my dad had gone soon. When anyway. Joe Taylor was gambling, yeah. money was nothing more than betting ammunition. He gambled at cards, the horses, and the greyhounds. And once said that if he ever found himself with five hundred thousand dollars cash. He would love to bet it all on a horse. <laughs> he held a fervent belief that the shorter the price of a horse, the more you put on. And I'll just quickly read about what Big Bet and Bill Waterhouse said about Joe Taylor. Bill Waterhouse, reputedly the world's biggest book of the time, once said, I don't really fear any punter, but if I could fear one, it would be Joe Taylor. Waterhouse explained, the trouble with Joe is he is one of the few men in the world who completely doesn't give a fuck about money. <laughs> He can back a few winners, get you on the hook for about 150000 and he won't come and collect it. He'd rather leave it with you and bet up to it. With a gambler like Joe, they can be very dangerous. He could run into a million or more. If the Bank of Eng England was his bookmaker, there would be times that the bank would, been t would have been terrified. Following his... This is talking more about Joe Taylor. Following his motto that money was for backing horses, he would generally pl plunge everything on his fancy in the last race of the day. It meant he had to pick the last winner to walk off the course winning <laughs> and he would then back up that night at the trots or the dogs. So that's Joe Taylor. He, mm. was, you, he was before your time, Adam. Yeah. Well, he, I, he died when I was 12, but my father was very close with him and my father adored him. Everybody loved Joe Taylor. He was mm. the most loved person I've ever heard of in my life by people. Do you agree with that, Max? Was he well, well loved? And oh, <laughs> there's no doubt. Everyone loved him. I can't, but everybody mm. loved him. Yeah. But he was the biggest giver. Yeah. I reckon Not he kept. I reckon he kept the punting poor in Sydney. That solvent <laughs> it would have it would have fed Bangladesh for a year. Yeah. But, but Joe was a uh, incredibly generous man. Yeah. Mm. And uh, you know what? Whatever he won, he'd give away. Mm. That was that was the remarkable part about Joe. You can't. I can't think of. We've had a lot of colourful – and in Joe's business, which was illegal gambling, was the game was to tour. Um, but I can't – nobody could get near Joe for his generosity. Mm. And, you know – He uh, never said no so to not only Not only to battling punters but to, to charities and everything mm. else. Mm. And if, 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 he, if he won a squillion, got no doubt he'd give a squillion away. Yeah. But uh, he, he was an incredible man in that way. Well, he was, he was the go-between – you could say the politicians, 
in the game. Yeah. He was the man. And he, he was the most powerful he, bloke he, in Sydney by a mile. He, and uh, they let the games run, didn't they? The, the yeah, yes, they let the games. But apart from that, which, you know, let the games... He, he had... He could get to big people in big places. Now, for instance, Sir Frank Packer. If you think Kerry Packer was a formidable man, you should have seen Sir Frank. Yeah. He was a heavyweight with big black glasses. But Sir Frank's wife became very ill. They wanted to get some illegal stuff to treat her, which she couldn't get here. And David McNichol, who was Frank Packer's lieutenant, editor of his papers, mm -hmm. Approached Joe. He said, Joe, Joe, can you do... And this is in David McNichol's book, so I'm not letting anything yeah. out of the yeah. He said, can you get some of this, this stuff? And Joe said, I'm not in that business. But he said, look, he said, Sir Frank's wife, she's, she's in pain. That's why we want... Okay. Well, he was going... Uh, they were going abroad and according to McNichol, Joe arrived with package and said, there you are. And... The business was done and you would never find a critical word about mm. the game or Joe Taylor in a pack of newspaper. Now, that right. was a big start. Yeah, that was a yeah, big yeah. start. That's now, no harm yeah. was done to anybody, but that's the sort of man that Joe was. He was a, a wheeler, a dealer. He worked between the game and the law and the politicians, every, everything. But nobody... Nobody, Adam, had a bad word. No, no everyone loved about, him. Mm. Uh, had a bad word to say. Did about you? Him. Did you go to the clubs and stuff? Would you go and bet there and? Well, was the golden nugget one of Joe's? The gold. Um, yeah, well, you would be too young. I'm Unfortunately, too you were young. too young for the. I think it might have been. I was, yeah. yeah. No, Joe, Joe definitely had Carlisle House because I remember as yeah. a little boy we'd be out for dinner. We'd always stop outside Carlisle. The golden Jack nugget was a, a, a place at the cross. And I, Tom I used to yeah. go there and. Uh, he had a, a wonderful speakeasy up near the railway called the Corinthian Room. Mm -hmm. The Celebrity no, no. Club was uh, another the one. Celebrity the Celebrity Club. before but that. I, yeah. Celebrity Club's a bit before Before me. your time. <laughs> that was in the 50s, the Celebrity was, uh, Club. Nah, but no, no. Yeah. I, I think did you go there to bet, Max, or did you just go because you liked well, seeing what was going on? I the Corinthian to have a drink after yeah. the trial. Were you a punter, though? Did you bet in the clubs, or that wasn't really yeah, your game? No, no. I was, I'd go for. A, it was a social thing with me. I wasn't a gambler with. I, I like the tour. I wasn't a gambler with, the, you know, the Baccarat or anything like that. And after you, you finish with the races and the trots and, and, the, and the boats on a Sunday, <laughs> the it wasn't, it wasn't enough. I've got, got, got no idea. What, what, is, what, is, what is the, the boats mean? We, and you bet on the, on the 18 oh, foot on the harbour. that big. And I uh, used to work for, uh, for an afternoon newspaper, which meant you started early. So, no, the, ga the games didn't really get me yeah. to, to any great degree. Yeah. yeah, It's a funny thing. I'll just back up what you were saying about Joe Taylor. Now, my father told me this when I was very young and Joe Taylor said it to him. He said, more important than keeping the coppers sweet, it's more important to keep the journalists sweet. <laughs> That's what he said. This is, my dad, I remember my dad when I was a little boy and he said what Joe used to do, he said all of the reporters had come there and the journalists had come to the club and he said that, and Joe, they all owed Joe. <laughs> Joe would be giving him handouts all the time. They never said a bad word about him. But Joe was the godfather of Sydney. He was mm. the most powerful man by a mile. They, they thought Perskillier was. Perskillier was a game runner. Mm. That's all Pers was. Um, you know, David Hickey got it wrong, the prince and the premier. The, the, the man was always Joe. But the press never wrote it about him. He, was, he had all the power, the politicians. They had the But you never really had... Look, I might have had a drink with Joe. You, you mm. never really had a... 
Well, he didn't he drink, said, I don't he didn't, think, did he? No, but I'm saying... Yeah, I, yeah you might have, but I, I don't I, think I he drank. I didn't have to go out <laughs> of sympathy with him. Yeah. Now, what I mean is I don't think <laughs> no, he drank. I, I had a drink with... No, he didn't. But he I, didn't I, drink, yeah, yeah. I might have had a drink with Joe. But, you know, I and I spoke with him after the races. And I used to see him at City Tats a bit. But to give you an idea, he, he would come and... Bert Lilly, great racing rider, mm. mate of mine, gave the anecdote. He, he, he went up to the... After Joe won the... Uh, Golden slip of birthday card, and Ray Joe Greenwood. wanted to. Joe wanted <laughs> Roy to, Greenwood. and he he was. They, they're outside. It would have been the Golden Nugget, or it might have been the other Carlisle Club. Mm. And Joe said, "Here's some money, Bert." And Bert said, "No, Joe." He said, oh, "Good, I don't want the money." Yeah, really. And he's and Bert. He said, "Here I am at King's Cross." And and Joe was he said, "Take it." Yeah. And he said, "And I said no." And he said, "Money's this going." This give everyone. Ladies of the night said, "Here's a Bert." Yeah. He said, "Bert wouldn't take it," yeah. and Joe wouldn't wouldn't have him not taken it. Yeah. And that, and that's the sort of thing he is. Yeah. And uh, and on that particular occasion, we'll say some of the nearby ladies did did get a bonus. Yeah. Yeah, but he was much loved by everyone. Helped everyone. Not only did he was he generous with money, but anyone in any yeah. in, in any in any uh, trouble, he would help. You know, forever helping people get out of trouble with the police and that. So, what do you mentioned, Perscalia? Mm-hmm. Why don't we move on and talk about him? Sure. And this is a you. This is a time when you were older and yeah. saw a lot yeah, more going on. Pers- Reasonably well. I knew his so son let's, Bruce this is what well. David Hickey says about Perscalia in his book. Perscalia, the uncrowned king of illegal casinos in Sydney and one of the nation's biggest and most flamboyant punters. He started out as a paperboy milkman and wharfy, but by the 1960s was regularly backing racehorse in multiples of £10,000. He won so much at Eagle Farm in June 1962 that he had, no, he had to borrow an overnight bag from a course official to carry the cash back to his hotel room. Galea took great pride in his personal appearance and became known as the prince in racing circles. So I've got a bit more written about some of the clubs, but why don't you talk a bit about... Yeah, well, I'll I'll start with what I remember. But he always immaculately dressed. I remember as a kid at the races, you know, because my father was friendly with him. He knew me and um, being, of course, I was my father's son, of course. And I remember a couple of times he'd give me $5. And this was in the 70s. $5 would be like, I don't know. A can of Coke was 20 cents or whatever, mm. so it'd be like $75 or something. You know? Yeah. And just give you $5. Oh, thanks, Mr. Galeer, I used to call him. Yeah. Call me purse, you know. But um, so my, my, I've got fond memories of him because um, he was always smiling and that, but he was a, a massive punter. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he passed away in the, what, the early 80s, I suppose. Um, yeah, but Max would know more about his betting than I, but he was. Known as a huge. He's like always he's in the paper. Pre- pretty similar to Hollywood George. He had some like good horses. Colourful, flamboyant. He was flamboyant, correct? Yeah, no, he, he, really, he was. You'd say flamboyant. Mm. He, he had a different style to Hollywood. Yeah, he was, he was a flam, flamboyant. Mm. Uh, he was a big punter. He, he you know, people followed him around the betting ring. I had a fair bit to do with Purse because he used to go to the. He owned racehorses. Eskimo Prince mm. was his best. But he had some good ones. He'd go to the track mm. every morning. Mm. And I was, I'd go to the track every morning in those days. So you'd, on a quiet morning, you'd spend a bit of time talking to, to Purse. Purse was an outgoing sort of a pet. He did, didn't mind what, you know, he'd tell your tale. Most of them, which you, you couldn't write. Yeah. And one of his bad habits was um, Eskimo Prince was, wasn't a big feeder. And uh, he'd go and he'd be feeding this, this horse carrots. And the trainer uh, 
Cess Rolls. He said, Cess Perth, Rolls. don't. He said, we're, we're trying to get some good grain into this bloody... Was she giving him carrots? She giving him sugar? <laughs> no. Like, he went, I can't get him to eat anything. But he, you know, Perth would be... Perth was there and, uh, of course, he, he, he'd, he'd tell me all of the business, what was going on. He, he, was, he was in charge. Of, he was handling the politicians. He was handling yeah. the... He, he was handling everybody that had to be paid. He was the go-between. And he told me the story, he said, uh, about uh, one of the, his people. He was the spokesman for the clubs. They'd give, you know, there were, there were a number. He had clubs, but there were others that mm. in, in the same sure. area. And uh, a young bloke built up a debt of 10000 which was a considerable amount at the time. So um, a young bloke, um, as Perth said to me, so he said... Uh, they said, look, go and get this money or we'll have to get it ourselves." And he said, it was going to mean a bit of trouble for the young bloke. And so Perse said, don't do anything, leave it with me. So Perse has rung up the secretary, Sir Frank Packer's secretary, <laughs> and said, uh, can I, my name is Perse Galeer, can I have an appointment to see Sir Frank Packer? This is Sir Frank Packer with a big glass. And he said, yes, and your business, all oh, well, it concerns his son, Kerry. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, well, okay, and... Secretary rings back, Sir Frank will see you at 10am Monday morning. So Purse has gone in there and this is Purse telling the story. This isn't second hand, he's telling mm -hmm. me the story. Yeah. He said, he, this big office, with, like a football over with big, he said, desk down the bottom with this great big man, the black sunglasses. He said, I've come in and genuflect. He said, what do you want? He said, well, it's, a, it's, about, it's about young Kerry. He said, yes, what's, what about young Kerry? He said, well, he's, he's got into a bit of trouble with the, the, the gambling Baccarat, he said, yes. Uh, how much trouble? He said, oh, well, 10,000, Sir Frank. What do you want me to do about it? Well, he said, look, he said, I think it would be very, he said, in the best interest of everybody if the debt was paid <laughs> because he said, these are very dangerous men. He said, okay. He said, according to Perth, big, what do you want me to check 10,000? He said, right, uh, who will I make it out? Well, he said, cash would be quite, yeah, <laughs> being ripped it out. He said, there. And he said, yeah, take this, Galea. He said, and go back, and he said, you'll find out what a very dangerous man is. Yes. Will I ever hear of him going into one of these clubs again? Yeah. He said, or I ever hear of him having a bet in any of these clubs again? He said, I'm the dangerous man. He said, I'll close a lot of you down. He wow. said, now try me. That's <laughs> and a great story. Genuflected back out of the place, <laughs> then ran, ran the last yeah. 30 yards, got out of there. You know what happened? The uh, club proprietors come to me said, Purse, you're going to have to go and see this bloke again. The fellow's got on for 10000 He said, hey, you were told not to let him on. So you, you have let again. him on. You will wear the 10000 wow. for being that. But it does show you something yeah. too about, uh, about Kerry. Like yeah. he knew. <laughs> he yeah. got square. Yeah, so they, yeah, so yeah right. They're all cunning. So they're all uh, cunning. Yeah. And, uh, they, you know, but this is – and that was Purse would talk to me. He said um, – you know, about some people, he says, so-and-so's still alive. I said, well, I said, yeah, he's in, I think it was Frank Brown, who's a great uh, journalist at the time. Oh, he said, yeah, Frank, well, he said, well, uh, he said, the change, he said, I'm, I'm working on a new budget. <laughs> I just don't know, when was he last heard of? He said, in Zimbabwe. Yeah. He said, he's still getting his pension. So he said, that's going to have to stop. But that was Purse. But Purse around the race course, he won the... Golden Slipper with Eskimo Prince. He threw a handful of notes. They're about 150 bucks, which people make light of today, but then it was a drink. 
mm. over the fence. You know, he was a uh, he, he like like Joan, not to the same degree, but I think you know the the average punter, the average person. I think they had a, a bit in common with Purse, and I think Purse had a bit in common with them. Mm. So history should remember him. Well, yeah. well, he'd be a lot more flamboyant than Joe, a lot more oh. out there than Joe. Joe well, was Joe an under-the-radar guy, really, yeah, wasn't well, he? Yeah, well, Joe was a different person. From what I understand, you know, because yeah. like I knew Purse, Purse better than Purse I knew Purse was Joe. closer to Hollywood as far as the oh, absolutely. persona was yeah, concerned. Yeah. So a different type of man, different You'd never hear about Joe. I suppose yeah. Joe died in 76, but Purse would often be in the paper. Yeah. 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 About and he wrote co- making wrote statements column. about yeah. his horses. My horse yeah. is going to do this. Yeah. And yeah. He had some, and all that was a good horse called Sticks and Stones, which yeah. held the course record at Randwick for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and Princess Talari. And, there was, and they had another good horse that won the Metro. So just before we stop talking Serene, about... The, Serene, Serene, Serene Star. Star. Serene Star, yeah. that's it. Just before we stop talking about the clubs and you can... Sir Serene. I'll just read this little passage about what the clubs are like and then you can talk a little bit about them, Adam, because you worked in them and whatnot. I did work in them. Um, So this is talking about the Forbes Club. The Forbes Club's location was advertised by a neon sign protruding over the footpath from above the door of the front door of a three-storey terrace house at 155 Forbes Street, just off William Street. So just on the Mm -hmm. fringe of the city, very close to where we are right now. Every taxi driver in Sydney knew it. It was regularly photographed by the media and became something of a permanent attraction on primetime television programs. Mm. Boxers worked as doormen and one staff man was a former North Bondi lifesaver of some note. There was also an electronic security system, though entry was freely available to any reasonably attired person. Crowds numbered up to 200 a night and you could leave your car with a man in the white coat at the club's unofficial car car park across the road and you would know it was safe. A multitude of young, glamorous hostesses obviously chosen for their looks and croupiers in plunging evening dresses supplied by management, mixed with the players, fetched free cigarettes and drinks, and often doubled down as late night escorts. Doubled, sorry, often doubled as late night ex- escorts. So the Forbes Club was closed down in 1976, but new clubs sprouted up all over the place. And this is probably when you can start to talk a bit well, about it. Yeah, well, you're I right. never went to the Forbes Club, I was too young for that, but I started working. My first job was at the Palace for Bruce Galil. Mm-hmm. God love him, may he rest in peace, great fellow. Um, at the Palace in about 1982, 83. Yep. How old were you then? 18, 18 or 19. No, no, probably nine, closer to 19. And what was your job? I was the cashier because they, it was the Baccarat, but they were playing chips. It was funny how, how it worked. The police said you, you can play Baccarat, which was illegal. This is, well, this is what I was told. And it would be right. But they weren't allowed to put cash on the table. They had to play with chips for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what... what re- so I was the, the cashier of the chips. I was in charge of the money, uh-huh. which was an entrusted job because I was Jack's son. That's why, because he was friends with Bruce and that's how I got the job there because I was Jack Sparrow's son. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, that was my first job there. Then, then um, they changed it to cash so I didn't need to work there anymore and I got a job down at Double Bay Casino, which was next to Woolworths there. Mm. Uh, for Tony Torok. Um, I used to deal poker down there. And the, the highlight of that was every Thursday night, the great George Freeman, another great man who I liked, um, don't believe everything you hear, 
uh, he's, he used to have his private honest. poker game, and I used to deal that, and that was a good gig. I used to get about eight hundred dollars a night. Wow! Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was they'd, good they'd money. Keep throwing you little. No, you, you get a tip. You, you, you yeah. deal half an hour on, half an hour off, yeah. and whoever won the pot would throw twenty dollars to you. So this but you'd is, have to give half back to the house. This so is your probably, university, right? You went to the university yeah. of the gaming club. This was after. I, that was. This is after I finished working at the race course. Right. I was an old man when I finished the race course. And was, was it ever there. even? Did it ever even cross your mind that you'd go to university and do something like no, that? No, not at no. all. I was at university. I, when I say stop, I stopped working for bookies at the races. Yeah. I started just handling money then when I was doing that. Yeah. Did you do the HSC? No, please. No. I, did so they, did you, I did HSC with Robbie Waterhouse. Did you, when Randall. did you leave school? When I was 16. Right. What school first were you at? First, D. Scott's College. And first you didn't make term, you, fifth form. You, so you didn't make year 12? No, no. first term, fifth form. Well, you had to get out there and get working. <laughs> the headmaster called me and said, what are you doing here? Yeah. We don't need you at this school. So you went to the University of the Racetrack and I just and, went and home and my father clubs. said, Dad, I want to leave school. He said, in, he said, I left on the Thursday. On the Saturday, I was working for the Waterhouses. Yeah. 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 For Rob. All right. Well, mm. um... Yeah, so anything more to add about the clubs? I mean, it sounds like it was, it yeah, was a no, magnificent time. Yeah, it was great times. But, you know, um, after that, my dad opened the two-up and I ran the two-up down at Chippendale. And, um, I ran that when I was 20, 21. I mm. retired from the gambling casinos at 21. Then I went out and just full-on betting. And w when did they all get shut down, the clubs? When did it all about get... About 80... Look, they opened... They were open probably till about 88, I suppose, 89. And there was the odd one probably floating around. But during the 80s, there was about 50 clubs in Sydney. Yeah. Because I'll tell you why, and this is interesting. A couple of people, Bruce Galea and an old friend of mine named Wally, they, they took it to court that blackjack was a game of skill and not a game of chance. So the magistrate ruled on it. So that they were allowed to play blackjack and they also ruled that poker was a game of skill and not a game of chance. So that meant that you could play them. So all these clubs popped up everywhere. Games like Baccarat were still illegal and the two-up was still illegal, even though we had the two-up. Mm. And we were the only two-up club in Sydney. Mm. Um, but what? Why do you remember when they got shut down, Max? What was it? A particular yeah, premier well, who came was, in? Uh, I'd say it was Neville Rand. But just going back to the casinos, that was I in the seventies. Neville Rand. I had to. Me. I had to do a uh, story. The son sent me down to do a story in the opening casino in in Hobart, and I went there and said, compared to the Sydney casinos, this is Woolworths and Coles mm. because. What Adam was describing, or what you've just described there, it had a, it had more than a liberal dash of class about mm. it, and where Adam was saying too about no cash on the on the counter, no well, casinos don't deal in cash; they deal in they deal in their own special currency. But we, mm. we in Sydney, we, we those casinos they had something. They had, look, I, I for reasons I've already expressed, I wasn't a big cas casino. Go there only because I had to get up early in the day after after punting on the tracks and everything. I didn't have anything left. But by gee, if you wanted to have a night out, anybody who wanted to have a night out and have a bed, yeah. they were the places. And everyone to be. would be dressed nice and everything. Yeah. Like it was classy. Yeah. Why yeah. they closed yeah. down was because they wanted to make. I've got no doubt Kerry Packer was behind them being closed right. down to the sense they wanted to legalise it. Yeah, no well, doubt. Yeah. of course there was a campaign against, for example, our club at Chippendale. They, Channel 10 did a thing one night and they went up to the door. They said, see here a bullet's been fired. It wasn't a bullet, it was some scratch on the door. Mm. They said they've seen people being thrown in the boot outside. Completely fabricated. Nothing. It was the safest place you go to the two-up. You look, yeah. get looked after there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no doubt. No one, no doubt and that. you never, ever did violent things in your club but because it would turn people away. 
Why the, the mm. point I see why it ended like SP betting ended. Yeah, exactly. So Rand was the man there, and Merv Beck, and, and look, I've, I'm I'm very happy to say couple couple of my my best friends people I grew up with are SP bookies and they were good SP bookies, but they didn't they didn't like Merv Beck was this untouchable copper. Yeah. I Beck don't say Rose, that. Oh, I'm yeah. not I'm not I'm not bagging him, but he come through the the front door with a sledgehammer. Yeah, these people weren't into that. Yeah. And, and yeah, 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 and really, and SP. But he was the 70s, those, Max. After yeah, Merv Beck had yeah, gone, I'm they saying, opened up again was, in the 80s. Yeah, they closed was, down at the end of the 70s, yeah, you're right, they opened it up started, again at 82. It started. But what I'm yeah. getting to, Adam, is yeah, I, to, to my recollection, in that era, corrupt as it was, everybody was getting a quit. Politicians were getting a quit. Yeah. The coppers were getting a quit. <laughs> everybody was happy. Yeah. The drug scene has been there since. Opium has been in sort of 1920s, 90s. But it wasn't a big thing when the SP was there, but it really exploded. Mm. Like, to my mind, when the SP closed and and everybody had to get a quit elsewhere. Mm. And, it, it, and of course, the Vietnam War came into it and then, mm. then the game, like, you know, the two and everything. Everybody, the people were getting, well, shall I say, backhanders out of that. But it was, to my mind... It, in many ways, it was a better society. There was then. a crackdown, mm. though, on SP. Yeah. I remember there's a game in Scotland. I know yeah. firsthand because I was arrested with Reg Andrews. I was working yeah. for uh, a you're lovely only, man, Reg Andrews. You were yes, but you only, oh, you only <laughs> dealt with him in top companies. Oh, well, you've got no <laughs> idea my yeah. resume. My resume <laughs> was with them all. Yeah. Reg Andrews, I was, I was working for Reg yeah. Andrews. I was 19. And there was a gaming squad. Yeah. You know. Um, that they, they, they would come and kick the door in. That's what happened. They double bay, you know. They kicked the. Well, see, the once upon a time, if yeah. that happened, look, everybody had to get. You had to take your turn to get pinched, yeah, you know, and get yeah. fined, everything like that. And everybody, and it worked in, in an orderly fashion. You were told, look, today is the day, and somebody you get a clean skin to take take the fall, which would be a twenty dollar twenty pound fine in those days, and the system worked. Yeah, mm. you, you could say that. Yeah, there were you know what it was? It was a four hundred dollar fine. When I got, but I didn't have to pay it. Well, see, that's, Reg paid that's how, how Reg was one of the proprietors of the Forbes Club, by the way. He was a Forbes Club <laughs> man, yeah. Reg Andrew. Lovely man. What a lovely yeah. bloke. Do you remember Reg? How yeah. good a bloke was yeah. Reg? He was so wonderful. Why don't we talk about George Freeman? Ah. Um, so, this George. is, uh, I got an excerpt. This is from gamblingsites.org. George Freeman was a very successful uh, illegal bookmaker in Australia. His willingness to accept any size wager is why he was able to serve such a vast clientele. Although Freeman has had several run-ins with the law, no one was able to convict him of anything serious, which allowed him to live as a free man most of his life. George Freeman was born in January 1935 in Annandale, in the middle of the Great Depression. When Freeman was just a few years old, his father abandoned the family, leaving Freeman, his mother and his two siblings to fend for themselves. For themselves. Since his mother didn't have a well-paying job, the family was forced to move to the slums and would often go to bed hungry. So that's a bit of background on George Freeman. Um, you, you knew him well, did you? Or? I did know him well. Mm. Yeah. And um, my dad used to do a lot, and I did business with him myself, betting with him. And um, so he was a punter, and he was an SP, was he? A big he's SP. He's an SP bookie originally, but then, but he was a big punter as well. Yeah. He loved punting. I think it's fair to, he originally got his first big kick of money out of the trots. Right. In the early to mid 70s. They won a fortune at the trots. They put all the SP bookies out of business on the trots. What people don't know is in the, in, in the, uh, up until the mid-70s, say, you could get as much on a trotter or a dog 
with the SP bookies as you could with the horses. And that was astronomical money. Um, but George put the SP bookies out of business on the trots and yeah. the fellow who you're going to talk about later, Ray Hopkins, put them out of business on the dogs. Yeah. So, you know, by the time I was an adult and doing business with SP bookies, you couldn't put a bet on the dogs or trots. And so was George Freeman getting outstanding inside information well, they on had, the trots? I, I, must yeah, that's a, a nice way of putting it probably. I think they, they, were, they, they were backing a lot of winners at the trots. Yeah. That's why we got the name the Red Hops, I think. Yeah, right. You know, and it was notorious for it. Yeah. Um, but you could get, as I said, you go to the trots on a Friday night, it was packed. There was yeah. 50 bookies there, wasn't it? Like that was in 1980, yeah. 1970. Adam, it, was, it was red hot long it before was, George Freeman <laughs> got there, don't you? Yeah, I'm sure. That. But they turned it to an art form, though. Wow. They, I think they turned it to it, but he won it. He got, they got a, that's where he got yeah. his original big kick from. Yeah. And then, of course, he started betting big on the, the horses. What, uh, what was your experience yeah. with George Freeman? No, I, I spent a bit of time with George. Um, Probably more time, as I said, due to the early mornings with, with Purse, but George was a raconteur. He told us some great stories, which he... Uh, George, I think, was a protege of, of Joe Taylor. Uh, For sure. Then George got uh, plenty of experience with one of the greats of racing, Melbourne Mick Bartley. Uh, incredible story, incredible man. But uh, George, as far as the, the trots go... Uh, George told me the, the story about one of his men come to him and he said, uh, I've got one on Friday night. He said, that won't need any help. He said, win by the length of the straight. He said, yeah, well, that's all right. But he said, it'll go up at six to four. He said, the first blink of any support. He said, it'll be threes on. <laughs> and he said, however, there could be a way because a leading bookmaker at that stage was paying 750 for a dead. <laughs> and as he said, the... The story unwound, he said, you wouldn't believe it, we've had the good luck, our race was the last race. So we've got two earlier deadens plus this one was the third one. The two previous ones got beaten, everything's going to plan, so up goes the good thing in the last. George's favourite bookmaker, seven to two. They got on for everything. Wow. He said, yes, and it was going, yeah, seven to two, four to one, you know, they play, come in, sucker, three to one, seven to two, four to one. He said, George, he said, George said to me, but he said, that wasn't enough. He said, I got the money, it wasn't enough. He said, I had to go up to him and say, a bill uh, 7,000 to 2,000. <laughs> and he said, he's looked at me in the eye and he said, get it off, we've all been had. <laughs> and, and he it, said, it did win by the length of the straight. Wow. Another That's one of the one. George stories. He had this. Well, Bill and George had a big feud. They, they used to have a massive <laughs> feud, had, Bill Warnhouse and George. But uh, he had this this place at um, Yowie Bay. He used to ring yeah. me up at the Sun, and he, if I wasn't there, he'd say, so You've got a message from Yowie Bay, George. <laughs> George. He's a very good contact, but he said he's, he's there one day, Saturday morning, and he said, There's all, you know, very big Saturday morning, betting slips, they're taking bets. In. He said, No, but. Over the, he said, we can hear these helicopters. And he said it was like something like, like you know, out, out of their, their picture, you know, they're hovering in there. He said, oh, it must be an army exercise. Went out to the, the roof and had a look at them. He said, you know, Black Hawk down there, all coming. <laughs> and he said, suddenly, he said, I realised it. They were raiding the joint. It's yeah. <laughs> these helicopters. They're going to land on the roof. And and they, I said, what happened? He said, I've got to go and get rid of the slips. Well, they had to go and get rid of the evidence that they were taking. So they raided his house via they helicopters. Had to run they had to get, they, they, they had to, and try and get the, all the evidence of betting 
down the dunnies whichever way they could because they were landing. They were landing. The the, were landing in Yowie Bay. Well, they Yowie had also Bay. The, the, the rice paper, you write the bed, yeah. so they put them in a bucket of water yeah. and evaporate. Yeah. And that was what we, <laughs> yeah, we said, this, the rice paper. Yeah. Well, this massive operation, they've come down, they've got them, and he said, I don't reckon they would have spent under about 10000 mm. to mount the helicopter. Pinch for SP. He said, I got, yeah. he said, I got pinch $500. That's right. It was a four or five. Yeah. I remember when I got pinched, it would have been around the same time. Four hundred dollar fine. And uh, That's George, too, he, he got shot outside the house. He he said there was yeah. this this wall. And he, you, you look at it, and he said every time I go in, it, I look at it and I marvel at it. But he said it's fear. He said when I got shot, he sort of leapt over the wall. Mm. And he said, I, I, I've looked at the wall every time I go in the front door now. I said, how did I ever get over that? Yeah. The adrenaline. He said, yeah. The adrenaline you over. Yeah. And I was yeah. Running for your life. But no, but George, George, uh, with the racing authorities, he, uh, they tried to warn him off. He, uh, he's... He, he had an association. Well, he very rarely went to the race. He didn't. He was he never at the race. Then, he was, I had seen him. I saw him at the races yeah. once, I think, in my life. And they he took the very, picture of him with Murray that, that Farr. That was another day. Chief I saw him at Warwick Farm one day. He yeah. was tipping to. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and you Nick know, it's... Uh, yeah. um, Dr Nick. But, uh, no, he, he owned Mr Digby. Yeah. And there was a scandal over Mr Digby. I think it got beat... Oh, on the Monday at Canterbury in a bog track. You got beat the start before. Uh, and then it come out of four or five days late on a good track. At Wednesday at Canterbury. And it, yeah. it won very well. And they outed, I think they outed Harry Clark, I think was the trainer. Kay Banks was, K- K- Harry, K- Harry K- Clark K- was the K- trainer K- and K- K- Keith K- Banks, Banks was but, the jockey. But uh, they, tried to, yeah. they tried to get George on that. Um, I don't think, the track was so bad and I got very heartened mm. About deadness, the track was so you could not pin a bad run on a bog track like that. Might, it might, they've sent out, how would you want to back it? And they mightn't have backed it. And it's come out in a better track. But, gone, but, but saying that, Mr. Digby was a pretty good horse. He ran was. fourth in an AJC Derby, oh, where the good. AJC Derby was a, probably a better race than it is now because mm. they were more seasoned the stayers. Uh, Rosa Kingston yeah. won it. I think yeah. Gurners Lane ran second that yeah. went on to win a Melbourne Caulfield Cup double. Yeah. And the third horse was a horse called Our Planet, yeah. which was a good yeah. horse. The Foisters owned it. And it ran fourth. So, and it ran good race in the Rose Hill. Yeah, it, but it, you know, this was a mm. shitty midweek race at Cairns. I was on it. Yeah, I had 200 yeah. each way at 15 to four. It started five to four. Mm. It was off the map. Then they well, put some money on it. That and don't give that glow. That didn't yeah. glow. Of, I mean, know, 200 each way. I got it. <laughs> 15 but, to but four. Like I've those, done it. But they took a very dim view of the. I remember. A very dim view of the previous run. But uh, yeah, that's I, right. I don't think it, I don't think it was that hot. I, yeah. you know, it. Asked the question. Mm. I thought the explanation was reasonable. And the one by seven legs. And, uh, well, what, what do you want to... <laughs> no, I'm just saying the one by seven legs. It, it, was, it was beautiful to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it being a care. I was, I, was, I, was, I was only 17 at the, the point, time. The point it's is beauty. that the chief steward got into big trouble over John Marnie. And John Marnie John ended Marnie, up... Yeah. And uh, he ended up... <laughs> Driving a tractor at Canterbury <laughs> to get her, but he ended up. He went over to West Australia. He had a very colourful career after that. But no, I know George was George. Um, uh, he was a big, very hard to. Uh, Bill Waterhouse wouldn't let him on. Mm. Uh, and but he was a very knowledgeable But he was. He, he was. You know, he, he dealt with, with he dealt with hard men too, yeah. and grew up with hard men. Yeah. He always said, like he he did uh, he did uh, 
18 months for shoplifting at, at uh, Palmer's, HG Palmer's. HG Palmer, I think, was it worth about store? 150 yeah. bucks. HG Palmer touched the joint for about 1.5 million and went to a holiday farm for a week or two. So, you know, there, there were great stories with George. He, he was a great raconteur, mm. storyteller. But, um, but a huge punter, by the way. Yeah. yeah. He'd have 50,000, I think, yeah. back in the day. You're like, one of my jobs was running off ringing him. Yeah. When there was no mobile phones. Yeah. Um, 5258090 was, I remember the so name. Uh, 5258090 was the number. So you were calling still. him back at his SP drive? I would ring else. him, in, but he'd say, you want my father to back this and I'd run on. Then my father had a, a bipper mm-hmm. a, 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 oh, yeah. a thing and it, he could send the message what he wants yeah. back. But my job was run off Randwick or Brose Hill, which was quite a way. You had to yeah. run probably... 500 metres there, 1,000 metres there and back type thing yeah. to the phone across the road in the service station at Ranwick or the, or the one in the bowling club at Rose It was all, all blacked out <laughs> then. To get yeah. information onto the course and to off the course mm-hmm. and to affect the prices. Yeah. It, was, it was such a big business. Like, you know, you could – if you, they come up, they wanted to back one. If one was being backed SP, they'd want to get the money onto the course. Mm, all that. And yeah, you, it was a big you, industry. The SP was huge. Mm. And, it, no, I, I don't think Adam today – a lot of people grasp just what a big business SP was. Yeah. yeah. No, no, well, well, the SP, you could get as much on a horse. In the 70s, you could get whatever, you, you get half a million probably on a horse SP, anything yeah. you like. Like Melbourne Mick was the big SP bookies, but there was a bloke called John Rogan, who was a huge yeah. bookie, Jack Lynn, yeah. all of these blokes. It was a huge network. This is before TA, well, the TAB had started, but, um, you know, there was no. What it was, there was no Sky Channel. So people would go to – there was no pub tab. Mm. I don't know when the pub tab mm, yeah. came in, but there was no – so every pub had an SP bookie. Every pub in Sydney had an SP bookie. Yeah. You'd walk in there and have a bet. Mm. Any pub. Whatever yeah. suburb you went to, you'd go to Dubbo in the pub, there'd be an SP bookie there, right? So uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a huge network. But and it, when big bets come in, they'd ring them back to whoever. Yeah. You mentioned Jackie Lind there. Jackie well, Lind. And you had – Mark Reed on this on, on this this outlet recently, but Mark Reed told me the story that he went to his family had a very big connection. His his mother was big part of Mabel Reed, mm-hmm. and his family had a big connection uh, with Melbourne Mick. Yeah, and he had one in in the Blue Diamond, fifty to one chance. I can't think of it now. And he he got to the meeting. He said, "We want to back this SP." And he said, well, "I don't do it now," but he said, "Jackie Lindle handled the business, mm. which he did." And Mark, Mark, and I can't remember the figures now. Mark had a very big each way bet on this this horse. We're talking about thirty three fifty to one, and uh, it ran second or third. Yeah. And the point was, he got so much on SP, mm. quarter the odds, mm-hmm. and y- you just don't. When, when you see what they they get on for today, and mm. it's just astro- yeah. you just can't. People don't believe you. It was mm. massive, mate. Mm. Um, so we've got three more people to talk about, and we sort of we moved to a bit of a different era now, where I think probably the whole idea of doing the form and computers and stuff start to come in more, um, and we get to sort of to where we are now, where the game is so vastly different. But Don Scott and the Legal Eagles, mm. Don Scott's sort of if he's probably the godfather of form, yeah. and when you you know the brief Brilliant. conversations I've had with Rob Waterhouse, he says that. 
he learned a lot of what he does off him. Everybody learned off Don Scott. Yeah, and, he's, and Don Scott's written that famous book. Is it called Winning Ways? Winning. Winning, winning with winning Don Scott. Winning and winning more. I think he, he wrote three books, in fact. Three books, yeah. yeah. And I think the last one might have been the most successful. So um, I don't the know much about Don Scott and the Legal Eagles, but I'll just read this one, <laughs> one excerpt I got off the internet. <clears throat> and someone asked Don Scott the question, how much time are you spending on form, study, etc. every week? And Don Scott says back... I spend about 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. I have two computers. One is linked to the telecom vehicle service. So I'm able to call up the, all the current tab dividends on race days to see what punters are backing and what price each horse is. And the other is a computer that has my special program for the trifecta betting. So I'd like to break this up into two parts. One, I might get you, Adam, to tell me why you wanted to put Don Scott on our sheet. And then, just, yeah. and then what I'll get do... Max to do is put a bit of colour to the um, what the legal eagles were and what that was all about. So right. why did you want to? Put well, Max had known better than me when they started, but my recollection's the early seventies. Your but your bottom button's undone if you want to do it up. Do Which that. this one here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't do up. Um, but yeah, they they were a bunch of law graduates. Um, Don I think studied law at university. They're all university students. Um, part of the other members were a bloke called Clive Everett, who was a big Morgan Ryan was on the fringes of it. Peter Wake, who was a bookie, um, but Don Scott, he had a big team, and, and I suppose they came to prominence. Correct me if I'm wrong, Max. In the 70s, that's when they come to prominence. Or yeah, I can lose decades. Uh, the actual original legal eagles. There was mm. a lot of legal mm. men betting at that yeah. time. Were uh, uh, Don Scott, who was the mastermind, yep. mm -hmm. Bob Charlie, who Bob was Charlie not a was legal in it, sorry, man, yep. Yep. and Clive Everett, Clive who Evett. was very, very much a legal man. Mm. But there were other legal people betting. Uh, Morgan Ryan was mm. fluttering around the ring. Probably the biggest one of them all, and the most successful of them all was the most successful legal eagles. That I won't. He's still going strong. I don't know. You're talking Michael, about Michael Michael McHugh was yeah. was. Regarded by Robbie Waterhouse as, as bigger than the legal eagles. Now, mm. separate them. But the legal eagles and Don Scott—that was they were they 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 were the headliners of the time. They they and and Don Scott was he was the playmaker, supported by Bob Charlie and uh, by Clive Everett. Weren't they very different to all the people we've talked about before? It sounded like it was very much about inside knowledge and knowing trainers and all this kind of stuff. And wasn't Don Scott and legal eagles? the first team to push that all aside and just analyse the form of a horse and start to use computers to help them do that. And that's why they found a great edge. I, am I right in saying that Don Scott wasn't getting calls from trainers saying this horse is going to do that, 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 it was just all his own? Yeah, he wouldn't be getting as much information as the previous we've talked about. Um, they all did their own form in their own way though. Mm. But um, I think it's a fair thing to say Don Scott revolutionised the way of doing form and he evidently was a genius. Yeah. Um, the way he could work out how much each kilo or pounds when he started it might have been uh, to, to, a, to a length. Things like that. Um, he might have been the first person to really make turn it into an art yeah. form, I suppose you could say. And using the computers. Mm. So he was the forerunner to the Jelko syndicate yeah. today and the Dr. Well, a Nick lot of syndicate. People, they, they all would have – it all started – look, look. one of the most famous betting syndicates, the manuals from South yeah. Australia, mm. they learnt by reading his book. 
Yeah, right. And they took it from there. So, yeah. it, so Dom's got formulated the basis, I think, better than anyone else of how you do form. Mm. And then, of course, it's been much improved by Dominic Byrne and Mark Reed in the early 80s and the Manuel brothers and now the Jelkos and um, Dr Nicks of the world. Well, I'm sure ever how they do their algorithms, Don Scott's mm. original theories go into that. Mm. Did you have anything to do with Don Scott, Max? No, I... I, I followed Don Scott. Don Scott was one of those people, which I think you've covered. He brought in a new form reference. He, mm. You mentioned computers were coming into play. There were great form analysts before Don Scott mm. like, and great judges who, who did form. And I think that, you know, the three pounds for length, I think that's been around. And, mm. But, you know, you, you, when I think of Freddie Angles. Fred Engels was did, did, yeah, uh, yeah. I knew Fred Engels' son. I met him. Yeah, but 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 Freddie Engels, some of them, yeah. and some of them, you know, some of the yeah. old time bookies yeah, would do their own, of, yeah. their, their their own um, uh, tele televising of races, and the clocking. But see, it's it's changing now. Now it's all gone to the the, the you know the, the the clocking, the the timing points like that. But then there, look, possibly one of the great form analysts of the world. Uh, was uh, was bull in England, time form, mm. revelized time. Well, Don Scott came into that, and Don Scott was the, the mathematician, brought mm. that in, into yes. the game, and yeah. and and then the, the times and went into it very methodically, uh, and wrote so well about it. But at the end of the day, and only did form on Sydney, though. yeah. But he, but it, then again, he, yeah. he got disillusioned. He'd go to Melbourne and yeah. and but. Uh, at the end of the day, while the, he was a great mathematician, a, a great writer, he left. I don't think he was, shall we say, that people had come after him that you've mentioned, and particularly yeah. when you you look at you, you, uh, uh, students like Dominic Byrne, like I oh, yeah. really, Don was the forerunner. Don opened the innings. That's right. I yeah. don't think Don was the major. By major the eighties, Don was yeah. passe. Yeah. By mm. the 80s. Mm. It was a thing of the past. And when you look at Jelko now, yeah. to what Jelko's done and, and how, how he's done it, but that's that's the mathematics that he got. That's, yeah. that's beyond me. That's the it's mathematics. Another, yeah. I'm more of a Hollywood George man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we like came up honey. in a different era. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, but when you look at... Different way of you doing know, how Jelko, in the old Sundays, I'm going back to the 1980s, and nobody knew anything about Jelko. We, I knew something about him. I did. I the, met him in '84 at the tour. The, the Vulcan, <laughs> the Vulcan, which was an old rundown pub, Broadway near the Sun office. The Vulcan. He bought yeah. it so he could get the TAB yeah. commission. That's yeah. right. Yeah. They understood yeah. all you that. Know, yeah. 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 Put it's, his own bets through. Get yeah. Yeah. very. Clever. And you say, well, well Greg Byrne was the first to do that. Yeah, Dominic's brother. He was yeah. the first to do that. But you think the money that they pulled out yeah. of it—that mm. that David Walsh, who was. Where would he would he be one of the lieutenants or a partner? No, David it's his partner. No, I think David Walsh is massive, yeah, massive equal bloody with museum. Joker, I don't know. This, yeah. this yeah. wonderful museum in Hobart, mm. worth a squillion quid. It's good to do. It's good to see that he's done something for the well, people. Well, he has, yeah. and he has, and it's, but it just well, shows you the enormity of it and how good the bloke is at it. Mm. No, they're freaks at it, mate. Because yeah. all the punters, the big punters we know, we've all, you know, they've been there, done that, <laughs> probably ended up with, with very little, but. Have a, have a look at 
have a look at Jelko and and and, and Walsh. Geez, they've they've done well. Yeah, yeah they've no, got incredible. a different. But 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 in saying that, they grew up in a different mentality, Jelko yes. and David Walsh, compared yeah. to the Hollywood Georges, yeah. the Jack Sparrows, oh, yeah. well the, yeah. the George Freeman. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, they've come from that well-educated university mathematics, you know, background. You're mm. not suggesting. You know, hey, Ollie, Ollie hey. and my father both left school at 13. You're you know, not suggesting. George never went to school. Well, I'm going to say, you're not suggesting that, you know, our lack of education, <laughs> you were thrown out of Scots when you were 16. That's right. I Good decision by Scots. I was left out of school, left at school when so I was you, 15. Yeah. <laughs> so if you'd finished high school, you guys could have been like David Ross No, no, not at all. No, not at all. No, I'm just saying it was a different, uh, different, hey. uh, different grounding. So in they, many ways, a Jack. But I wouldn't exactly call David Walsh and Jelko actual punters. No, yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're mathematicians. They're mathematicians. Yeah, 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 it's a different yeah. sort but of thing. The point about education, and you've got to have it today. Of course. But there yeah. you are. Yeah. We've got we've mm. got Adam here. As no, I said, I've, got through, I've got through the long grass. Well, you you got it. You got. I've got through the long grass. Hey, I've done well. Hey, but he got he, he went to school. I left school when I was fifteen. Mm. Two days after my fifteenth birthday, I'm not particularly proud of it. Mm. I wasn't any good at school. And did you become a cadet journalist I, straight away? Oh, jeez, I've become a copy boy. Yeah. Jack was a copy boy. Yeah. My father. But you were working in, in newspapers <laughs> yeah. straight away. Jack so was a copy well, boy. What I'm getting getting to is education. Now, two of the smartest men of my time, and I'll throw them in against anybody, were Tommy Smith mm, and Melbourne McBartley. Yeah. Mm, Both, yeah. I think, were closer to illiterate. Yeah. Than they were. Yeah, Tommy couldn't read or write. Yeah. But there mm. again, mathematician skill. Well, you said Tommy couldn't read or write. Mm. Uh, Lloyd Williams said that if he if he wanted a good CEO of a major company, oh, Tommy man. Smith would have yeah. been the man. But he couldn't read or write. And I don't think. I don't there think is Melbourne no, McBartley, who was a street kid. Yep. Great story. Back streets of Fitzroy. Yeah. <laughs> and both ended up with harbour frontages and rollers. Well, that's mm. right. They both mm. ended up with mm. both, both rolls. Go, so you tell me, like, and I'm not, I don't bag education. Yeah. And you, you've, you, you talk about Jelko and those like the latter, mm. the latter age geniuses. But by gee, what uh, was it about those people? Yeah. Mm. Oh, they're now. They're now. Yeah. No, but what? what now, what my point is, it's a different. It's a different way they do things when you've had that university education. I'm not talking about what do smarter or, you know, no, no, they have to do things. Mick, Melbourne Mick did things from a different angle. Mm. Melbourne Mick invented things. Like he 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 got a way of getting the the shortener from Melbourne before it got to Sydney. And, you mm. know, he, he got the jump on things. Mm. He understood. And, of course, they all got rich out of getting the com, 5% yeah. com with the SP bookies in yeah. those days, handling big money, you know. Mm. Um, one punter, I think, turned a, a million dollars over one weekend. We're going to talk about, I think, the punter. And Melbourne Mick, he earned 50,000 com one weekend. Mm. And this is in the 70s. But even against that, yeah. Adam, still got Melbourne Mick... Plundered the computer toted. Oh, he, the, he was an innovator, mate. An innovator, brilliant man. You know, you had to you had, you had to pick the, the six winners on the program, yeah. and that's where the mathematics, his mathematics, come yeah, in. Yeah, he yeah, did, yeah. he mm. got it twice. Oh, he's brilliant. So let, let's talk about Terry Page. Oh, um, Terry you want to give us a bit of an intro? Ben? I've got a nice little excerpt about when he owned the Coogee Bay Hotel. Yeah, but well, I like. worked for Terry Page. Okay, when he was a bookie. And why was he so influential and such a big bookie? Well, he, he clearly had nerves of steel. Um, he was a huge bookie. He bet in telephone numbers. Everyone was... But, you know, he, I suppose he was a very good client finder. 
Yeah. He, he's good, very good at finding the client. And he had a great... And he came from sort of nothing. Well, Max had known better than me from the simple fact where he came from because you would have known him longer than me. But he, he had a meteoric rise, Terry Page, really, didn't he? He did. Before you knew it, he owned the Coogee Bay Hotel, which he bought off Derby Munro's wife, Kathy So, Munro. why don't we – I'll stop you there. So, he bought yeah. the Coogee Bay Hotel for $3.5 million, And I like this one. It's not really to do with what we're talking about. But I it's thought a, he paid less for that. Where does it say that? I think it said in the oh, – I don't think that's correct. He, I think did, it was, he did a special deal with, one with point, Kath Munro. I think I it was 1.3. Okay. I think it's okay. a special deal. I've, I've, yeah. I think there might have been some on top and some other, but we won't go into that. Can I, no, I'll tell you what, 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 my, my, what I thought it was the deal, and I could be wrong. He paid $1.3 for it. Mm. He gave a 300000 up front and gave a 200000 every year for five years. Yeah, that's, that's the sort of right? deal yeah. I heard. That's, I that's what, my, that's what my, I heard yeah. when I was a little boy. Yeah, no, that's Now, whether that's 100% right or not, no, I don't yeah. know. That, that's... And so it, could you buy hotels? It'd be worth every part of yeah. 150 and, and million. It, now. And he And because I grew up in Coogee, yeah, he bought. He owned that when I was about nine or ten. That was about seventy three or seventy four. Yeah. I was about nine. So let me read this because yeah. it, it was during Terry Page's stewardship of that hotel that the nightclub Salinas became one of Sydney's mm-hmm. go to entertainment venues. It was reputed reputedly named. After Terry Page's daughter. For 40 years, That's Selena's right, Selena. hosted yeah. some of Rock Muse's biggest names, including in the 70s to 1990s, it, um, including Midnight Oil, Crowded House, In Excess, The Angels, Cold Chisel, Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats, Roxette, Nirvana, James Brown <laughs> was also said to come with an entourage of 50 people and Meatloaf opened his show by driving a motorcycle onto the stage. Not much to do with betting, but imagine being the biggest book in Sydney and that's... You're getting all those stars there. Yeah. Can I tell you something funny, though, about this? So we'd, we'd go to the races in the Rolls-Royce. He had this – originally had the gold Rolls-Royce and then he got the beautiful blue corniche with the black roof. And I, when we go to Rose Hill, I'd leave my car at the, in the car park and off we'd go in the Rolls-Royce. And he loved that song Sheena Easton sang Nine to Five. That was his favourite song. The Dolly Parton song. When did it come on? I think he used to pay 2WS money to pay it on. <laughs> he never used to listen to the races on the way to the races, by the way. Yeah. Never on 2K. It was on 2WS listening to music. And he liked Sheena Easton so much, he got her to perform as a leader. And that's a, that is a fact. Like, I don't know what happened. I think he had such a crush on her. Yeah. He, uh, that's this is the song that Dolly Parton. Pa- he got her to come out and play there. Is this this is the Dolly Parton song you're talking no, about? No, no, different, no, different, different. No, my right. baby takes the morning <laughs> train. Edit that, but I can't sing it. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that one. Not not working nine to five. The other nine at Sheena Easton. Yeah. He um, loved Sheena. Anyway, that's a, that's what was that's it? another person who sang at Salinas because he loved her so much. What was Terry Page like in so, Sydney in those days? Was he a, another big bold personality? And yeah. He was. Mm, you, my word, know, everyone Terrence, knew he, he came up as a meteoric rise because he was a, a bookmaker. Look, everybody comes from somewhere. Mm. He was, you know, he was a bookmaker. I think he's, he, uh, he, he'd handle a bit of money. He'd take a bet and, of course, mm. that's, that got him to the forefront. It was an entrepreneurial flair like he could, he could see the could you. And he had, as say, he, he wasn't a... When you're a form man or anything no, to do with racing, didn't care about didn't it at care all. About just, just, just let them on. Yeah. Just, yep. just get get you into it. And it was his, um, you know, he uh, his way way of life. He wasn't a flamboyant personality. Well, he no, isn't a flamboyant. He, he, he had a fun, he had a quiet personality. He, said, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't uh, you know like a Mark Reed or anything no. like that. But he could he could he could get punters. He could send 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 punters, yeah, and yeah. he, uh, you know, he'd. Uh, 
I, I think they, they gravitated towards him. But it's a fair thing to say in the early 80s, Terry Page was as well known a person in Sydney as anybody. Mm. Everyone well, he had a football it, team. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he, yeah. A bit like Just, Justin Hems yeah. these days, sort of. Yeah, well, no, but I'm not promoting the group, but, but he was just because he did the ad. Remember the two he's yeah. ad? <laughs> you know, I feel like a two. He's Malcolm Johnson. It was about Malcolm Johnson. And of course, then it had flicked to Terry on the stand. He'd be holding the. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, but he yeah, was yeah. like even a TV personality. Yeah, yeah. Like people, every. But if you, even if you didn't go to the races, you knew not so much of Justin Hems, but Terry Page was less like. Oh, Terry Page, the big bookie. Yeah. Well, you know, they'd be in the paper all the time. Terry Page takes this. But it was a different world, I suppose, where, you know, yeah. Sydney was a small place. Yeah. And people like Terry Page were big news. You know, it was before sport, you know, it was when you couldn't have a bet on the tab in the football. You know, there was mm. only races to bet on, really, and, and Todd Dogs and Trots at the tab. Mm. You know, People didn't know, look at tennis much. The Australian Open was on. But racing was a – 85% of the gambling dollar was involved in racing, I think, in those days is a fair thing to say. And Terry Page was an icon of Sydney. He mm. really was big. Like, and the Waterhouses were, of course. But Terry was this personality. Do you agree with that, Max? Yeah, but in a it, way, it's, it's – because it wasn't as if he was an outgoing person. No, he wasn't. Mm. No, he's he rather was, shy. Uh, he, he, yeah. Yeah, he was a sponsor. I, I started a radio show with Ian Cray for 25 years. And Terry and the Coogee Bay, yeah, they, were, uh, yeah, they, they were sponsors. And uh, mm. uh, at that stage, Dominic Byrne was more or less his... his well, his he did his apprenticeship book. there. He was. And Dominic Byrne would come on and give the, the Coogee Bay special and the lay of the day and everything like Very that. Very true. And yeah. might I say was, was absolutely brilliant at it. Mm. That's where, like that's Dominic, where Dominic and started. You, and yeah. when you see these young blokes, they're running around the place and then you see Dominic who was probably one of the... Best form assessors, one and a very good bookmaker. I, I think if he'd lasted, it probably would have been one of the greats. Mm. But in his time, in his period, was certainly a very. It was Dominic Byrne, and there was Robbie Waterhouse. No they, one more astute they, they than were, Dominic Byrne. Uh, mm. and, and there they were. But you look back at mm. it, and and Terry is still going. He's, yeah, still, he's up he's on, on the Gold, Gold Coast. Coast. Well, yeah. when I was a little boy, I'd go into the. Okay, so the Coogee Bay Hotel was there. The office was at the back. They had like an office. Maybe. Coming yeah. in from Argy, on the left there was an office, yeah. and that was the racing. I'd go in there with my father. I would have been about eleven, ten or eleven, and Dominic's desk was the first desk, right? And mm. I remember him walking. He goes, "G'day, Mr. Sparrow." He goes, you know, you call me Jack. I remember Dominic calling my father Mr. Sparrow. Like mm. when I was, and I remember the day I was in there because I've got a very good memory for things. He said, "Stop calling, call me Jack." Da da da. da. Dominic was a young, yeah. young, probably nineteen. I said, "Well." Well, he would. Well, hang on. He's about ten years older than me. He would have been twenty, say, I suppose. And he was at the front desk doing the form. Mm. So Dominic's first job on the race course was for Terry. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that's where he started. And of course, the rest is history. Dominic came under there, but Terry didn't care about form so much. No. He mm. just played the punter. Yeah, he'd let them do whatever they. In Terry's eyes, no one could win punting. Mm. That was his theory. Mm. And I remember he said two things to me. He said, only mugs bet on horses. And he said, and there's only two kinds of people that own horses, millionaires and mugs. And at the time, <laughs> millionaires were millionaires. Yeah. Millionaire, millionaires yeah. or mugs, he said, own he, horses. Uh, he said to me once, he said, uh, he was having a bad stretch. I don't know how mm. many hundreds of thousands of millions he was down. He's bank manager. 
he just said, well, he's got the coochie bait <laughs> and this let everybody on yeah. and they, they, would, they, they, would, they could be demanding times. Him and Perskillier had some massive betting clashes. I went, mm. I went, you know, he said, I said, the bank manager, he yeah. said, well, how am I going? And you don't know what, what they own or what they owe or the whole thing. The bank manager said, well, keep going. But he said, I'll let you know when you can't, which yeah. is, a, is, is a terrific, uh, uh, I would say, terrific association to have with your bank manager. But his solvency must have been pretty strong. Well, with the Coogee Bay, everything, yeah. with, with that. But no, by gee, like he, uh, it was a big thing. He, he had a couple of, I think, promotions with John Singleton and, Mm. Yeah, and uh, well, I remember when when I was in the car that day in 1981. It was he said Singo's had five thousand on Newtown with me. This was at the beginning right, of the season yeah. at fifty to one. Yeah, and of course Newtown made the grand final yeah. that year. Right, like they you know, <laughs> were a fifty to one chance at the beginning of the season. Yeah, so I've just he said Singo just donated five thousand. I bet him fifties new. I mean, they got the year, final, they? As the year progressed. <laughs> Oh, they're going a bit better than first. So we've got one more to go, Ray yeah. Hopkins. Um, and this is – I'll read a little excerpt about him and we can chat about him. And Ray Hopkins is still, as you say, doing very well. Lives in Sydney, correct? He's in yes. Sydney? Yeah, yeah right. he's still in so Sydney. This is, this is from an article – um, six weeks ago. An article you wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2006, Max. Uh, and it's Cole Tidy talking about Ray Hopkins. The best – this is what Cole Tidy says about Ray Hopkins. The best punter in my time was Ray Hopkins. You could get on for mammoth money in those days – when he was chasing, he would go to an SP but would shorten it up himself by backing his fancy at the track as well. He was the biggest and the best. He would get on a losing street and bet up bigger and bigger. So that's pretty big coming from Cole Tidy. And I think also when I was talking to Mark Reed, Mark Reed said that Ray Hopkins was his hero. Um, well, in the 60s and 70s, he was everybody's hero that was and a he punter, just So he was the biggest punter of all, was he? Well, they call him the Boy Wonder. That was his nickname in the 60s. In yeah. the 70s. He would be the biggest punter of all time, I think. Why? Why was he the biggest punter? Oh, just the, constantly just betting. When I say the biggest punter that did it for so long yeah. and consistently a big punter. Mm-hmm. Like, he was and also he, a bookie. Wasn't he the Bash he was King, wasn't a, it? Yeah, Bash King. Was the, it was him. Bricknell... Abrams, yeah, Abrams Stollery and Hopkins. Hopkins. And why were they called the Bash Gang? Well, what, the initials. Right? Bricknell. Yeah, no, I know that. But, and so what, they all bet together, did they? They were a syndicate. Oh, they, they said they were a syndicate you know, when they bet that was the team. That's and what they, they bet said. On the, I don't know the, how factual it is. And you mentioned earlier on that Ray Hopkins put SPs out of business on Greyhounds. On the Greyhounds, yeah. yeah. He stopped it. He stopped it single-handedly, them taking bets on Greyhounds. He won that much money, I, yeah. so I believe. Yeah. Um, and as I said, George and his mate, another bloke, Who's still with us? We don't need to mention him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put them out of business on the trots. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Ray. But but much loved person. Ray. And he's Hopkins. in his nineties now, is he? Ray. He's ninety. Yeah. Are you in contact with him, Max? Father, yeah. You in contact with Ray Hopkins? Yeah, I was uh, at Doyle's with him. I would say on December sixth. Nice. Yeah. And Ray Ray was very sharp. Yep. One of I think one of the secrets with Ray and Ray was you find that the the punters, and I think he was he was a bookmaker and bookmaker at the dogs mm. and everything, but the punters are in the limelight that strike the headlines. They're the ones that that don't seem to last. They have their splash. They're like the fly firemen. The, you mm. know, you look at them. But the Hong Kong Tiger, yeah. uh, a lot of even even Hollywood George, even to, to a degree. But when you get the quiet men. Which you've mentioned a few. They're very quiet, and, and right? You know, the, yeah. the quiet men. They seem to not the headline men. Yeah. Now I, yeah. I don't ever recall 
Ray, Ray didn't have an ego. Headline, and that's mm. the point. And mm. and I, I, I think you analyse this for me, but I, I think that you know when you get in the spotlight, and might have something to do with the personality, that the blast seems to subside. Mm. With it, a, with a bad thing having an ego when you're a punter. But when you when you look at Ray, no ego, no no ego. And you talk talk to him and uh, very intelligent. <laughs> have, have a good conversation with him yeah. and everything like that. But when I, I think there are real good days, you're chasing a big story and there's a Hollywood George or a Perse Galea. They're different, different, just mm -hmm. a different class of horse, weren't they? Yeah. There was, yeah. There, there, there was never a story with Ray, and there should have been. Yeah. When I say there should have been, of course that's probably. Part of the success of it, you, yep. you're not in the limelight. You're yeah. not you're, the tax people aren't looking at you. Other 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 areas aren't yeah. paying you a lot of attention. H hiding in plain on, sight. You're getting, is, is you're getting set. You, you're getting through the this this great mm. and wonderful world of punting and gambling and horses and dogs and and you're surviving it. And mm. it's, uh, another flip fun. side of it. It's very hard to win booking and punting at the same time. Is it? Right? Mm. Well, it, well, it is. You're either one or the other. Mm. Dominic, I suppose. Well, Dominic gave the booking away to become a punter. Ray was a big punter and a big bookie at the same time. And dogs and... And <laughs> dogs as well. Go, yeah. Now we'll go to the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, a betting machine. Yeah. Right, as I said, so much loved by everyone and very well regarded yeah. by everyone, yeah. Ray Hopkins. He's a much loved person. Um, fantastic. So I think we've put... Got a good history of the Australia's biggest punters together. I definitely want to yeah. hear a bit from you, Max, just about yourself. So, mm -hmm. you're still working at the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, yes, yeah. And yeah. how many how many articles do you do a week for them? I do one for the Sydney Morning Herald. I'll, I'll one of most most weeks one, but uh, Carnival time I might do two. Yeah, and you were writing about James McDonald over the weekend. I read your article, enjoyed it as usual. Yeah, yeah, James Mac, he's, he's a pretty good job. Where would you rate him as the jock as you've said? Oh. He's very good. Look, who are your top you five jockeys? Can we well, ask you that? Well, you can't rating champ. Look, my my definition of a champion, be it horse or man or, or horse or human, is the buzz, the personal buzz they give you. Yes, there are a lot of greats, great jockeys, great horses, great trainers. But it's a person. Maybe it's because yeah. you win with them. Mm. Like Jim <laughs> Cassidy is a champion. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, he was a champ. Champ Damien Oliver's a champ. I still Oliver. like to, to watch Ollie. Mm. Ollie still gives me a buzz. Mm. Get back to George Moore. There's no better jockey than George Moore. Uh, I think Athol Mully was just as good, but he was the finished product. Athol, look, he 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 was spectacular. He was every bit as good. But he wasn't as finished as George. He never mm. had the never the had dedication. the drive, the dedication. You know, yeah. and the beautiful jo like Peter Cook was a great jockey, but yeah. didn't have the drive. Wonderful jockey. Pete Dittman had the drive. You got J Mac up with all these jockeys. He's in. The, he's getting to the great. He's class. getting yeah. there. He's getting uh, there. You've got to do a little bit more. Yeah, very good jockey. Yeah, you look at them, but but I I I, I spout a bit about J Mac now because he's the news. Mm. He's he is yeah. the best going today, but. Good judges tell me Zach Purton's every bit as good and probably even better. I don't see a lot well, of Well, he's probably got now. a bit more experience mm. on him. Uh, but, but, you know, you, you say... Jockeys do get better. And look, this... this I was going to say kid, but J-Mac's 31 now. But Moore reckons he didn't reach his peak he was 35. Yeah, mm. they get better jockeys. And yeah. some yeah. summer has-beens at yeah. 21. Mm. But, like, he's getting there. He's, you know, he's getting there. But, uh, mm. no, I, I've, I've been very fortunate, as we have 
but as you have, mm. you come a bit like you probably didn't see the best of more. No, but I remember him as a little boy. Yeah, no, but, I, uh, I, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he, he I only a, heard his name you've got all the time. Try and temper. Yeah. I think memory inflates. Yeah. Yes. I was fortunate enough to see Clive Churchill. You know, yeah. it's yeah. and the greatest. You can't imagine anybody being better than Clive, but it was a different game then. Different mm. game. Now racing, not to the same degree, but it's different. It is different. To what it was in George Moore's time, mm. to what it was even in Derby Munro's time. People told me you'd see Derby Munro and Jim Pike, that Derby was the best jockey. And My and father even, said Derby was the best he ever and, saw. And even comparing him with Moore, good judges said, look, Derby was better jockey. Derby, than the old blokes all say Derby. Yeah. I, I can't go on 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 a statistic, yeah. mm. and it, it's like a lot of lot of the good judges today, they don't go to the race, they go on statistics. Well, all right, mm. you're successful. Have a look at Jelko. He's successful. You yeah. don't go to the races. He wouldn't watch mm. a race. Still, no. To me, <laughs> what what was your old man said about the races? If you're not at the track, you're not in the race. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're always a chance, aren't you? Yeah. Who, well, you're always a chance when you're betting, I suppose. Who's the best horse you've seen, Max? Oh, again, you couldn't say. It. I, I've never seen a better horse. I think you've got to look at longevity a bit. I'll make an exception with that because if you ever saw Todman, mm. you never saw a better horse than Todman. Tullock was a great horse. And yet uh, Neville Selwood rode them both and he said any distance, any track, any conditions... Todman was the better horse. Wow. Tullock did have he a decision dis- over him. But uh, you, you, th- there are those points. But there again, um, in more recent times, Bane was a champion in my year, gave me that buzz. Uh, Sunline gave me that buzz. Mackaybe Diva gave me that buzz. Black Caviar. Well, look, she was You're restricted freak. in a distance. But mm. if you didn't get a buzz out mm. of her, you, and, of course, Winx did. But the thing that Winx makes a comparison, and Kingston Town, I can't miss the King, that, that Winx could have won a, a group one over six furlongs and I think could have won a Melbourne Cup. Yeah. But unlike the champions of old, was never never tested to. Mm. And that's what Kingston Town could, Tullock couldn't. Mm. You know, uh, and to say that Black Caviar could have run past a mile, no. Mm. But those, those other horses, they were... They, 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 they were, they gave me that buzz, but the great horses I miss and I rebuke myself are superimposed. Yeah. One amazing He's the best miler. Won mm. a Cox Plate, ran in Melbourne Ran Cups. second in a Melbourne yeah. Cup. And like, you know, you, <laughs> he was a miler. Really you, you look at Dulcify. You ever seen Dulcify? Dulcify was a good one. Jeez. And Manicata. <laughs> Manicata, you know. Manicata. I never, was I've probably mate. never yeah. seen him, but Manicata was a golden slipper winner. There he was. Carrying my money in an Australian Cup, yeah. length and a half in front. That's right. Gold slipper winner. And then got beat a length. I said, you know, use better. But what beat said, him? How did that happen? What? Dulcify yeah. beat him. It does yeah. come like a rocket that day. I, it was home, man. It Manicata. Jeez, it was a racehorse. While I think that the jockeys and the trainers and every they're comparable with the, the greats, I don't know whether the horses are as good. Whether I was closer to the horses then... But, you know, there seem to be more better horses then. The best now, and particularly mares, something's happened with mares over the last 25 years. They've expanded incredibly. I said it, in all the sports in the world, there's only one sport where the mares are as good. Yes. And that's horse racing. Yeah, and also females are as good. And and not only horse, (laughs) 
horse and human. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah but you, what I mean, yeah, but females are the best, uh, just yeah. as good. Mm. Like any other sport, men dominate, yeah. right? Mm. Um, the thing that the mares have an advantage on is the fact that they get that two kilo advantage. Well, maybe so they should, but we just, but we both think starting to agree. But once upon are a they time, just as good? But once upon a time they weren't. They weren't, once but now they time, are. I think they, they're just as good, time, and they're getting the. Once upon a time, you know, they yeah. they were the weaker gender, both on horse and human. Yeah. But mm. you have a look at it now, Jamie, Jamie Carr. Carr. She's yeah. as good well, as I don't anyone. Say yeah. that she's she's mm. as good as J Mac. I wouldn't say that myself, but some mm. would. But she's very very good. Rachel King is very good. Kathy O'Hara rides a yeah. lot of winners. We've got a lot of these young apprentices coming up, and you, you know the, you look the at game the has changed. You, what would you, would if well, the last five great horses of Australia though are Winks, Black Caviar, so you think he's a boy, McIvy, Sunline, and McIvy Diva. Yeah. Well, I don't. <laughs> They're the last five great well, ones in the last twenty years. Well, he's before that. I so can't the last twenty years, you go back to ninety seven. Okay, yeah, 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 then Might and Power. Yeah, yeah. And then you got to go back sure. to probably. Yeah. I well, I, I, you see, that's what I, say. I can't give. I I condemn myself. I just can't give might and power up there. Okay, a, a great yeah. horse. A yeah. great they horse. won the Caulfield Cup. No horse in the world yeah, would have beat him. 50, that no. he had yeah. fifty-one, fifty-two yeah. years back. And then he, he went was up four kilos. He wasn't consistent. He was a brilliant mind power, but he wasn't consistent enough. Oh, he's pretty oh, consistent. Uh, he got beat quite a few times. Like not when you blind it up against what Winks did. And Sunline was pretty inconsistent. Well, yeah, Sunline was a different sort of horse. Tell him about yeah. the weight for Winks was he, running in weight for rage races. That's right. Might and power. Look, might and power is winning handicaps, mate. Yeah, but Wade Frage is pretty hard to win too. Hey, uh, no, it's not. It's su- it suits the best horse. I'm a huge Mind Power fan. I'm just not. saying that he's, he's when you look at his career, it's a little bit dented compared to your Winx's. Well, they're a different sort even of your horses, mate. And stuff. One, was just, a, one was a mile and a half, two mile horse. You're using the word dented, but the old horses, they had to get out of their comfort zone. That's right. They, they don't had to. today. That's right. They don't. They've got they don't to match. It's all set up for sure. the weight for age sure. stuff. You'd yeah, never, yeah, probably yeah. never, a horse yeah. like Sky High wouldn't come into your equation. Mm. Sky High won a golden slipper and a good golden slipper. Sky High won a Derby. Won an AJC mm. Derby Sky as well. Sky High <laughs> was favourite for a Melbourne Cup and had about nine stone nine. Mm. And they had to do that. And he was a dead set. Probably a mile. <laughs> as his, I don't know how many group ones he won. People, you know. Think of them, but they, they yeah. were great horses. Yeah. Mm. Great horses. Yeah. Like Kingston Town when you ran second in the we had 59 kilos that day. Maccabi Diva had 58 when she won her third. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They had to carry a kilo more. If yeah. he had 58, he wins the cup. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm just, you know, carrying weight, giving horses weight. We see, the luxury Winks, not detracting from Winks, she's, her and Kingston are the best two horses I've ever seen. But she never had a race where she had to give, the entire field weight. Yeah, yeah. She was yeah. always yeah, getting away. She got yeah. she got two kilos off that thing. Red excitement. The day she be very excited with that match. She got two kilos off red mm. excitement. Are you serious? How's he given her two kilos? Yeah, definitely. This weight help. for age system. Yeah, though. but, but you it look suits at the best horse. Gunsin. 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 Look look what he did with it over a mile and mm. did it carrying huge weight. Huge. Mm. They said Gunsin couldn't stay two miles. Mm. He had nine stone eight. Which he is was three and four wide all the 60 way in the Melbourne Cup. Yes. He got beat by Piping Lane. Had seven stone eight. Got beat a length and a half. Mm. What would? How well would he have got him two miles with about eight stone? That's seven? right. Mm. Take some weight off yeah. their back mm. and see. There you go. Yeah. Last question, Max. Yeah. Who who are some of the great journalists you've worked with in, oh. in in the way that they've used words and stuff in their articles and things like that? Oh well, I think you. I think there's 
any good writer can write a good racing story. And you talk about good racing stories like Les Carlines wrote some beautiful yeah. racing stories. But, oh, gee, like, you know, when I, I think of the, the great people that I've had been fortunate enough to be working around, uh, like Bert Lilly, and the different, and a lot of different style of writers like Keith Robbins, I think you mentioned there. Keith was a reporter. He wasn't a writer, but to get the news. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there were just so many. In Melbourne, Jack Elliott. And Jack Elliott wasn't a Les Carline either. But when you saw Jack work on a Melbourne Cup and the speed at which they worked... Now, the Melbourne Cup was run at 2.40, so the Melbourne Herald could be out on the street at 4.30 outside of Spencer Street Station, and mm. it was. Yeah. And you could pick up... It was an art form. The Melbourne Herald, after, after a Melbourne Cup at 4.30, there was everything you wanted to know about. Every big <laughs> bet, every jockey comment. That was yeah. journalism at speed. Yeah. I'm an old tabloid hack. I appreciate that more so. There's beautiful writers and mm. many, many beautiful writers. Andrew Rule now, he's a wonderful writer. Mm. They, they're all good, but they're, they're not racing writers. They're writers that write well about racing. But when I think of the Burt Lillies and the Jack Elliott's, and some of the, you know, the Jack Schofields, the men of my time. And if you really want to get into the, into the nitty gritty, the, the Pat Farrells, the Frank Browns. Pat Farrell, I remember uh, Pat Farrell mm. as a kid. And uh, you have a patch on his eye in the article, in yeah, the paper. No, they, 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 they didn't have some yeah. photo with him, a thing over his eye, Pat Farrell or something? Yeah. Uh, sitting Pat, Pat? Great, great story about sitting Pat. Sitting Pat. He, uh, yeah. I think it was Melbourne Mick. He had a very <laughs> bad night at the, the, the trots, the dogs. And they were trying to find out, you know, he, he, oh, well, Mike, well, is there Pat? He said, no, yes, well, I'm just ringing you up. It's Saturday morning. I know I've had a bad night. I haven't tallied it up yet. <laughs> and <laughs> and Mick said, well, yes, Pat, you had a bad night. It's not like you to be betting that big. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, Look, were you putting money on for anybody? Was anybody else to buy? Oh, yes, he said somebody else was to buy. He said, can you give me a name? Can you give me a name? He said, yes, sir. Having Jack Daniels. <laughs> Jack Daniels. Oh, right, right, right. Got it, got it. Got it. Sorry, I was slow to get that one. Um, yeah, Mick, Mick wouldn't be giving him any names. <laughs> <laughs> so that the booze was to blame. Very good. And what are you – the game's so different now when you started your career. Do you oh, think yeah. we're in good shape? No, yeah. it's, the game's different now. Unfortunately, racing's not one of the biggest games in town. It still is, mm. but it's not appreciated as one of the great... Big Look, racing today has got many... It's never been stronger in certain aspects. We've been talking about the SP bookies and the money then. Uh, but when you look at the owners in racing today, in Jack Sparrow's time, there might have been... The racehorses were owned by landed gentry. Yeah, mm. Colourful racing personalities. Mm, that's right. A few businessmen, maybe a few mm. legal giants. Now, when you look at the thousands that mm. are in syndicates. The syndicates, mm. yeah. There was yeah. no syndicates and there. And I, at the races on Saturday, the Millennium, the mounting enclosure, it was packed like sardines with people yeah. that owned a share in a horse. They owned the tail. Now, yeah. 40, 50 years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm. And you look at, you look at the, the business that that the big bookies are doing today, the mm. clients that they've got. Mm. Well, they've absorbed all that SP money mm. and everything. Like, alas, it's not the same at the track. Mm. It's sad 
the track. I'll always go to the track while I can. The betting ring once upon a time was a three-ring circus. You, you look at it now, but there's still, I still reckon you can get the best price. You shop around, the mug punter like me shops around, you'll get a better price for the betting ring at, at Randwick or Rose Hill than you will off the corporate. Mm. Well, the prices they put up the board. Mm. I don't know whether you, you do. You're hundred percent right. You but do you get can. a better, better and, price you know, at the track. It's still there. Mm. Racing is still there. It's it's a wonderful industry, wonderful sport, wonderful pastime. It's never been a job to me. It's a yeah. way of life. Yeah. It's a way of life. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's a great way to finish. Thank you, boys. Um, Cheers. It's been fun. I'm sure we've uh, a lot of people will learn a lot about the great game. The history. So, yeah. yeah. You got to know about the history. Max, thank you very much for taking time to come and talk to us. Nah, my pleasure. Adam, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, and we'll, we'll roll on. Cheers, boys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Well done. That was